Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, episode 256. This week we have Matthew Gates back with us again, uh, IPM expert extraordinaire. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This should be like an official title. Right? We, we gotta, we gotta, you've been back enough times, we gotta give you like some kind of, some kind of. On, uh, on Twitter I thought it was uh clever to say insectus optimus maximus but that's a bit of a mouthful and a little pretentious it's great so for i'll have to work on that it's great for twitter <laughs> <laughs> it should be a little pretentious for uh, we also have uh, marty waddell joining us tonight ap meds hello hello and uh fumador how's it going cheers guys we have uh, a little bit of housekeeping real quick first we have, um, I'll see if it'll load right. No, it doesn't want to load right. Um, two seconds. I'm sorry, guys. I fucked up. Uh, you should do it like on my show where we say uh, you're welcome. Basically, no apologies. Oh. If you guys are watching, screw you. Like, you're welcome. You're going to check out apmjclass.com if you're looking for a uh, uh, full top to bottom aquaponic cannabis class experience. Um, Marty and I have added new content to that almost weekly. Uh, so uh, definitely check it out. We have over 600 slides and counting. Uh, actually, I think we're way past that now with a lot of the live sessions and everything else. So um, definitely check that out. Marty's got a bunch of new content with his new greenhouse build, and we've just finished recording a ton of new content for the channel. So definitely check that out. And then we also have, you can see in my background, the uh, virtual aquaponic cannabis conference, November 13th and 14th. We'll be announcing the speakers next week. I'm just confirming the last one or two to make sure their times work before we uh, do the announcement so that I can give you the schedule as well. Uh, so um, we're, we're, I got, I think, uh, one, three people left, I think, just have to confirm their times uh, and then we'll have that out. But we have over 30 speakers for that conference and 26 hours of education. It's gonna be 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, and uh, just an absolute like wall of education. So check that out uh, a little bit later on. So um, uh, thanks a lot for joining us tonight, Matthew. Um, you actually have a lot of really cool stuff you've been working on. You, you had a new paper or, or book uh, coming out on viruses. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what kind of what you've been up to lately? And then I got a bunch of really awesome questions for you on, on viruses and a bunch of other fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So um, to answer what you were saying, I have uh, two chapters of a, um, two, for two different books. I have a, a colleague who's publishing uh, books about organic uh, agricultural practices. And um, one of them was about arthropod pests in, in cannabis. And the other one was about um, viruses, uh, basically cannabis virome. And uh, especially on the latter, but also in the former, I had to be pretty careful. I couldn't go over as much as I wanted to be, you know, normally they had a, a pretty tight limit. So I had to be very clever with my wording and, and uh, kind of keep it brass tacks. So, um, and I was very excited to talk about this because I think it's something that's pretty underrepresented in the cannabis space um, for a lot of different reasons. But um, yeah, the more people I can 
kind of at least get even to the concept of thinking, oh, I might have a virus and what could that actually be in this context? I think is very important. How would that, how that's uh, vectored and that kind of a thing. So I think a good place to start is, can you explain to people the difference between a virus and a viroid? Because people often use them interchangeably, but they aren't really the same thing. That's true. So like they're all viral agents. Um, and so when I talk about them in, in the plural, both of these kind of groups that are very similar, I sometimes use the word viral agent or, or something like this so that I can, uh, I guess, um, be specific. But basically viroids, um, they don't have a really important, a really common uh, thing that viruses have, which is a protein sh uh, sheath called a capsid. And um, viroids are basically like naked in that way. And um, that's like a, that's the, kind of the main difference. Um, viruses, I think, as far as we understand it, are a lot more prevalent. And if I am remembering correctly, I think viroids are only found in plants so far. I don't think viroids infect other or colonize other kinds of organisms, but if they do, I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible and I'm not a virologist, but um, you know, if they do, I don't know of any examples where that's the case. So what are some of the different common ways that cannabis viruses are vectored? Uh, I know I've seen pruners transfer them, at least with mosaic virus firsthand at facilities. Um, what are some of the other different ways that, uh, and vectors that are, uh, you know, spreading this virus right now or various so, viruses that you get to? Right. So, um, so like in that chapter, um, I talked about a few different viruses and I also talked about the hoplite viroid uh, regarding cannabis. So, um, typically viruses are actually, especially in plants are, um, vectored by insects. That's probably the most common route. Um, and a lot of common pests are also vectors of, uh, viruses and usually insects. Um, in some cases, plants, uh, can be like, there's a rose rosette disease that is, uh, transmitted by a type of russet mite, not the uh, hemp russet mite for cannabis, but a different one for roses. Um, so there are various kinds of arthropods that can vector viruses, you know, theoretically, uh, conceptually. But for cannabis in particular, you want to consider the silverleaf whitefly, which is known to vector over like 480, I think it is, uh, plant viruses. Uh, super common in uh, cannabis, although I don't see it as often as many other pests. Uh, and also many other plants for that matter. Um, so the silverleaf whitefly, and it's, uh, it, it vectors the lettuce chlorosis virus for cannabis, which is also kind of a new discovery. I, and, uh, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, and the beet, uh, beet leafhopper uh, vectors the beet curly top virus. And those are the kind of the two main big ones that uh, people should be aware of that's becoming more prevalent in cannabis. I was going to say there was um, two different facilities where we suspected lettuce chlorosis virus in aquaponics, and we did not have at least any detected white flies. Um, and then we are wondering if there isn't some other aquatic vector or some other insect that maybe we were, you know, unaware of that transferred, or maybe even through just people being stupid with pruners. You know, I could totally see that being the case as well, not paying attention or not following procedure. Yeah, definitely right. Um, our understanding of the uh, um, pathology is going to be 
sort of unsupported for now until we get more more research. In this case, the LCV was uh, discovered in Israel, um, and I and I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head what the systems or the dynamics of that were. Uh, but I do have a, a video about it on my YouTube channel for people who are interested in that information. And I uh, kind of lay it out more articulately. Um, I even use my own videos kind of as notes sometimes. So uh, that's something that people could do if they wanted to learn more. Awesome. No, that's great. I, I love the content. In fact, if anyone hasn't had a chance to check it out, he has probably one of the coolest videos on the internet around pest management where he goes over the evolutionary history of cannabis's ancestors and the pests that were attacking it at the time, according to the, the current understanding. And it's one of the most informative and most interesting talks I think I've ever heard on cannabis pest management. If you haven't checked out that YouTube video on his channel, uh, please go check it out. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to name the name of that video because I can't remember the name of it. But it's a long, it it's a long name because I hate marketing, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh it's part of, I started as a series, it's the Global, Can, uh, Global Cannabis uh, Pest Management Review. Um, and that was the 2019 parts one and two. So part one talks about the evolutionary history and part two talks about um, uh, pests and ecology um, or ecology and pest host relationships. And it goes through from, um, from itty bitty viroids and viruses all the way up to arthropods and mites and uh, insects and that kind of a thing, various microbes, you know, along that path so that people can kind of understand all of these various uh, organizational scales of life that um, interact both positively and negatively. I feel like it's kind of a, um, it's sort of a pernicious and persistent uh, perspective about ecology that like there's like the and even I'm I'm a, um, a, a victim of it when trying to describe things as like good bugs or bad bugs or good things or bad things and like and like if you have a, a balanced environment that means that you can't have uh, you know bad stuff lurking kind of in the area and um, I think that that's almost true but not totally always the case like think context and mutualisms and parasitisms can change over time, especially with microbes. And uh, there's a lot more, um, you know, research being done every day about that kind of stuff. So I like to, to keep it holistic. So what are some of the different viruses that people are finding in cannabis? Um, uh, I, I don't know if you want to maybe start with, uh, we can touch on this. We actually talked about this last night on Fumi's show. Uh, um, the, the new dark horse um, data that 90% of California facilities have hop latent viroid. Um, uh, that's, that's a lot of facilities. Yes, right? so, um. it is. <laughs> I, um, you know, when I talk about cannabis viruses and, and also um, kind of pathogens in general, bacteria, fungi, and all of that, sometimes I'll get people who say things like, um, you know, uh, oh, if the plant's like too healthy or if plant's healthy enough, it won't have a problem. Um, or that like, uh, potentially it's a bit, bit of a conspiratorial perspective that, um, oh, the, the nurseries and the clone, uh, and the tissue culturists and those folk are very keen to spread this information. How convenient that's their job to, uh, you know, remediate these plants 
and they're also saying there's this massive to, you know, need to do so and to check and follow the money. And I mean, I think that it's actually valid to have that sort of skepticism. I definitely, uh, I applaud that to like not take something at face value. But I'm also inclined to agree with the results of like this article, for example, that at the very least, especially because hoplite and viroid has such a, um, a very specific set of symptoms or even kind of lack of symptoms that makes it very difficult to track. And since prohibition has made that very difficult already to track things like pests and that sort of a thing, which is why I try to help as many people as I can, like by coming on this show and talking about it. Um, you know, I'm just not surprised. I guess I wouldn't be surprised at that level. 90% is very high though. So, I mean, the implication is it might be a little bit more than that, right? Because it's not a census. So um, uh, what are some of the other um, viruses that are, are being found in cannabis? Um, I know there's quite a few different mosaic viruses quite a, and, and you, you've identified a whole bunch of others. Um, tell us about the, the different types that there are, you know, being found in terms of varieties. So there's the hoplitin viroid that uh, a lot of people have heard about recently. And it is a viroid, so it's, it doesn't have this capsid protein shell. Um, and it's very persistent. So the, the latent and hop latent viroid means that it has um, sort of a, a, a latency to it, which means that you don't always get the symptoms immediately on colonization with the host. Um, and in some cases, the symptoms that you get are actually quite mild. So especially, you know, unfortunately, uh, for people who are particularly um, new, right, and maybe don't know what a really nice, healthy, vibrant plant might look like, or if they're, um, you know, likely to interpret their first run as not very good, they, they might mistake those symptoms like, like, my, like stunting and like short growth and spindly, uh, you know, branches that might snap and this kind of a thing, these sort of generalized characteristics, they might interpret as something else. So um, I think that's kind of what makes it such a, one of the things that makes it really problematic. There's other viruses too, or other, other viral agents, like, um, like I said, beet curly top virus is vectored by the beet leaf hopper. And that's very common globally. Uh, it's in North America in many places, California, um, you know, even in the Midwest. I have a video that talks about uh, the beet curly top viruses um, presence in uh, Colorado and also in Arizona, for example. And I've also had people tell me that in California, they've encountered it as well, which is sort of unsurprising. Um, and then there's alleged chlorosis virus I already mentioned that's vectored by the the Bumisia tabasi, the silver leaf whitefly. And uh, that's a crinovirus. That's usually, that's, was, those are mostly associated for whatever reason with kind of Southwestern North America, but uh, this was found in Israel. So obviously uh, very, very far away. Um, but a lot of horticultural trade is likely to spread these pathogens and their vectors around quite a bit. Um, there's also, a virus that actually people don't have to deal with too much, and that's uh, cannabis cryptic virus, which I think is kind of an interesting virus to talk about. I might have talked about it before as well, but uh, essentially, so a beet curly top. 
Yes. Yeah, so here's some very um, mild symptoms of uh, that sort of leaf curling. Uh, and as it gets more and more pronounced, you'll see that the leaves, the leaflets will kind of curl on the, on each other, like very severely. Um, so, so yeah, so the cannabis cryptic virus is interesting because it's not actually vectored by anything. It's a uh, kind of, it stays in the plant and it gets vertically translated or transmitted through progeny. And it's, um, it's interesting because it's very closely related to some viruses associated not with plants, but with fungi. And one of the sort of speculations is that perhaps it got into cannabis a long time ago, uh, originally from a fungal pathogen. And then when that fungal pathogen colonized the plant, it moved into the plant this way, which happens to other things like genes and, and, and sort, of, sort of stuff like that. So it's not outside the realm of possibility pathogens sometimes just kind of get um, transmitted this way. Uh, but because that's not how it normally transmits, it kind of got stuck and it's just kind of there. I guess it's associated with certain hemp lines, which are becoming more and more popular in cannabis breeding. So I expect to see it more often, but who knows what negative effects it really has, if any. Well, they, they think that THC was originally like way back, I was reading about that, or maybe Steve was talking about it, I don't remember that it would, would have been um, a response to a viral infection that originally... Yeah, it was a, they traced the THC gene back to a virus, if memory serves me correctly. Um, that's, I think that's the case. I also remember reading about that as well. Um, I, I like to point out that like um, some of the ARC genes, ARC, that are related to short-term memory in, in humans is... Um, uh, part of a, I think a retroviral um, interaction. So we have a lot of, and also I think this is the case for um, uh, uh, the placenta actually, mammalian placenta um, development is um, I think also thanks to a retroviral interaction, pretty crazy stuff. So is the gene that makes you a boy or a girl? I actually don't know if that's true. I don't think so, though. <laughs> oh, I remember. I remember reading that. Oh, maybe so. I don't. I really don't know. I know that the Y chromosome has some weird stuff going on with it. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about expression. So this is something that I found really interesting observationally. Uh, I was at a grow facility that had the same lights set at different light spectrums, and in a block with four different setups. And one of them was set to a different setting. And you could see the one cultivar just under the one light spectrum was expressing mosaic virus in just the one cut and under just that light and not in the rest of the room. And you could see how it had smaller buds, longer internodal spacing, smaller curled leaves, uh, the patterning, the whole nine just underneath that one light. Everything else was the same. This, they came from the same mom. Uh, I thought that was really interesting that the light was having that much of an effect on the viroid load and the viroid expression on the plant, like some kind of other stress trigger was going on uh, with that bed, with those lights. I don't know. I, it was, again, strictly observational. I don't have anything beyond just being there uh, uh, to, to see the place. But um, 
I thought that was super weird, but um, also I thought it was an interesting point to bring up how viral expression can be dramatically different from even one part of the plant to another part of the plant. Uh, and have you know be real messed up over here but not so much over here and uh, and a healthy plant can oftentimes you know suppress even an, uh, an infection with certain viroids um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how like especially when it gets to some of the mosaics and stuff like that you know, there's a lot of bad misinformation on like hey well it would be all over the whole plant and it would kill it right away well not necessarily you might it might be able to kind of reach some kind of balance and, and you know, there's all different types of, of mosaic viruses. There's Arabis, there's alfalfa, um, and, and all the other cucumber uh, uh, that you can test for now. And we'll we'll talk about that in a minute with the different testing. Um, but um, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how that that dramatically affects what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And I have a um, uh, I have a research report in German that I shared on the Chief Homegrow podcast that um, people can check out there. But also, I'd be very happy to share it here for those who are interested. That they did experimentally expose cannabis to various viruses, and, and a couple of the ones that you mentioned, the cucumber mosaic virus is one of them, and uh, I don't remember there were a couple of others. Um, mosaic, I think, was another one. I think that might have actually been one of them as well, and uh, uh, potato virus Y or X, one of those two, um, and a couple of others. But um, yeah, so, so basically, I just want to say that as an, as an integrated pest management specialist, it's, it's very important, I think, for people, especially when I'm talking to people about diseases and, and pests and what they can do, um, they don't always have to know everything there is. But if you are a cultivator, it does help to know a little bit about how your plant's health actually affects um, antagonistically things like pests and disease and pathogens and things like this. How, what is the actual thing that's happening? Um, because then when people tell you that they have like a product or a service or something that will help you, um, they can actually know kind of mechanistically how that happens, at least generally. And it does go a long way to like demystifying some things that maybe aren't true or are a little bit more nebulous. Um, I bring this up as a long-winded way of just saying that I'll, I'll explain two ways that plants do what you just asked. One is the hypersensitive response, which is also true in, in mammals and in animals. That's like programmed cell death. So to affect viruses, if plants have a really good hypersensitive response to that virus, if they're able to detect um, you know, particles or things associated with the virus and then mount an immune response that is actually effective, uh, then like you, you, they're kind of winning that battle really well because um, fundamentally that virus requires the cell machinery to work and to replicate itself. So if that plant is, um, it just has a robust immune system for detecting and then kind of quickly priming that response, which happens a little bit different in different plants. Uh, but, you know, if it has that ability, then I feel like that's, that's going to be something that's really important. And so that would be one thing that might make a plant resistant, for example. And as we like actually sort of genomically sequence our plants and, and test for like resistance genes or gene-based resistance in, uh, in plants and what they do, uh, we'll be able to actually prove that or at least confirm that one way or the other. The second way that plants do this is through um, what's called RNA interference or basically uh, like gene, kind of like gene silencing. So 
they're able to kind of either cut or kind of interrupt or disrupt the ability for the, the genetic material from uh, kind of getting replicated and processed. And you can do this at various levels and at various points in the process. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't always understand all the little in intricacies that have to do with that. But um, those are the kind of the two ways. So it's totally within the realm of possibility that a plant can be resistant, but that's um, gonna be kind of either cultivar specific, sometimes individual specific. And uh, there are other factors besides even genetics that can have this effect or can facilitate it. Like obviously uh, all of these defense mechanisms require energy. They require, um, you know, metabolic activity to be good. And, uh, you know, if you're water stressed, because usually in the wild, you know, plants can't move about. So they rely on their ability to deal with and kind of um, de-escalate the stressors that they deal with. Maybe it's really hot. Maybe it's really cold. Maybe there's not a whole lot of water. In addition to, I got bacterial pathogens. I've got uh, you no know, fungal interactions that are directly good or, or, or directly beneficial because they mine me my phosphorus or they um, are doing whatever other things. There's this massive array of things going on. So um, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, I didn't realize there was a difference between hop latent viroid and hop, st hop stunt virus. Uh, I thought they were the same thing. Do you want to touch on that? Uh, that was news to, uh, news to me before I was doing some research for this show. Oh yeah, and I think we might I think we might have actually talked a little bit about that on the Chief Homegrow podcast. It might have been a um, or maybe earlier. Sometime we were talking about. Uh, I think I remember saying hop stunt. Um, I think I did remember something noting that a little bit. But yeah, so hop stunt virus virus is different. I actually don't remember the genus off the top of my head. I could look it up right now, actually, um, with the IS, the, the, uh, that same uh, committee about viral taxonomy. Internet. I know, right? The internet. Obstant virus, right? Yeah. Have hop stunt, stunt virus. Yeah. Actually, so I'm gonna, this is a great example of uh, one of the problems with talking about viruses is that um, their names get changed a lot, especially over time as we like uh, merge them with other genera or we realize that less so now, because like we have a lot better ways of like analyzing them, but actually um, I'm not gonna bog you down with the search. It did not take two seconds to find out. So um, maybe other people can look into that too, but yeah, they are different um, entities essentially, but uh, I can't go into too much more detail. I was not primed for it, <laughs> just like the plants. I've often heard that it can be some of the um, uh, hop latent viroid uh, specifically can be transferred through pollen. Has that been confirmed or is that just suspected? I didn't know. Oh, you, yeah, that's I a good question. The um, there, I don't, I actually think that's not the case, or at the very least, it might be super uncommon. See, um, 
right? Like when it comes to like empiricism, it's very hard to prove a negative. So the, what people end up trying to do is trying to find situations where something isn't true, like through falsifiability as sort of a proxy for it being the case, or they see if they can find it supported. And um, there's not a whole lot of research on it. So I kind of, I a little bit feel uncomfortable saying definitively one way or the other, but it's kind of also like with the vertical transmission in general, either through pollen or through the ovaries of the plant. Uh, some reports show uh, situations, at least in hops, where it's, it's kind of very mild. Um, and some also research reports are also just kind of old. And um, I feel like, you know, a reinvigoration of that research is already on its way and we'll have better information. But at the very least, it's, it's, I think that if we take all of the research that we have currently, I don't think that it's something that's at the very least very common because sometimes you do get transmission that's vertical, but it's very inconsistent or it kind of only happens in laboratory settings to see if it's you know, theoretically possible, but like in the field, the chances for it might be incredibly slim. And so um, that's my take on that subject. All right, let's talk about everyone's favorite mosaic virus. Um, I see this at least almost at least once one strain in every facility I go to it feel like lately. Um, what are your thoughts on on the different types uh, we've gone over there's there's lots of different ones I wanted to also bring up I figured this would be a great time. If you guys ever are curious about your stuff um, currently as far as I'm aware the, the company that has the widest range of testing for the different types is Agdia. A-G-D-I-A, uh, and they have the curly top virus, hop latent viroid, hop stunt viroid, uh, alfalfa mosaic, arabis mosaic, cucumber mosaic, uh, and a whole bunch of others, tobacco streak virus, tobacco mosaic virus. Um, I think they also have uh, tobacco ring spot virus as well on a different pitch. But um, uh, they have a, you know, a whole wide range of different things depending on how you want to do it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, if you have the equipment to do it, or if you if want to you buy click it. on the Hobson, see that's Hobson viroid. So uh, when I was looking up the ICTV uh, webpage for Hobson virus, I found Hobson viroid, which is a positive, which is in the positive virility. Um, so that isn't actually, so just like we were saying, that is not a virus, but I have heard hop stunt virus. I've also had, I've also heard for those uh, who are familiar with it, um, uh, sun hemp with two N, so S-U-N-N-H-E-M-P. Uh, and so sun hemp is a different plant totally for those who are just not aware of that. Um, it's a completely different plant, sun hemp. I don't remember the binomial name myself right now, but in case people had heard that word kind of uh, bandied about. It's a cover crop. Oh, let me throw it up here. This is the first thing I found here. Sun hemp seed. There we go. Yeah. Crotalaria uncia, I'm going to say. Something like that. So yeah, you know, it's kind of like corn. I don't think it's exactly the same, but it's like the word for corn. Corn actually doesn't refer to uh, um, specifically maize or whatever. Um, it actually just means kind of like the grain 
that people make or the people the the, the, the most generally used grain essentially um but nowadays like that's synonymous with corn so uh, well you know i just said corn so it's like in, it's ingrained right you know what i mean but corn was not always corn if that makes sense <laughs> I found this company too. This is the other one. I haven't used these guys, um, but I have. I did find these guys. Uh, All Crop Solutions. Um, they have a whole bunch of different ring spot, streak, uh, and some other funkier ones. Um, uh, that's Even another. Even phytoplasma. Even yeah. phytoplasma. That's nice. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to touch on phytoplasmids? People don't really talk about those too much. Uh, uh, and how much of a danger that could be if it really took off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, I realize I, like I often do, I didn't actually answer your question about mosaicism. So I wanted to say that um, uh, uh, sort of mosaic symptoms are just a kind of symptomology. They're just a kind of symptom that you get in plants. Um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily know what virus you're getting, and in some rare cases, something that looks very similar to mosaicism, like, um, you know, we've talked about this, like variation, variegation, I'm sorry, and um, other weird hormonal growths and things like that can sometimes look like something that is like gnarled and you'd associate, but um, yeah, you should really get it, like kind of you're saying, you get checked, get it confirmed, uh, because like the paper that I talked about earlier, or what you're saying here, kind of shows you is that there's more than one that you could be dealing with and sometimes even multiple if you can believe it uh, historically this does happen so uh, sometimes the symptoms are very very dramatically different than either one alone uh, but for phytoplasmas yeah phytoplasmas are a special kind of bacteria they are all vectored by uh, insects um, and uh, recently for example for those who are familiar, citrus greening disease is a, a, a big problem in uh, Florida and California citriculture, and, and also in, in China. It's called Huanglong Bing, which means um, yellow dragon disease. And um, it was recently found that the phytoplasma, at least in citrus, actually isn't a pathogen at all. It just causes uh, sort of like a kind of, for lack of a better term, like an, uh, there's a specific term that I'm blanking on, but essentially like almost like an autoimmune disease. It's like it, its presence uh, causes the plant to, the plant's immune system to go into overdrive, attacking itself and in the process kills itself. Um, and what people found was when they uh, applied some compounds like from oak, leaves and also from um, uh, some other compounds that would um, reduce the oxidative stress in the plant, it actually caused the symptoms to go away. And in some cases, even I think reverse, if I remember correctly. Um, and this is like the first example of it in plant pathogen uh, or at least plant physiology history, uh, which was really cool. I wish I had the, uh, I could get the report for those who are interested, but um, there are other phytoplasmas that affect cannabis. Uh, there's a couple of different ones. Uh, phytoplasmas aren't very well understood because um, they've only been known since like, I think the sixties or seventies, I wanna say. 
And so um, research on them has been very recent. They're not very culturable because they're always vectored by an insect or they're in a plant host. So it's very hard to study them. But from what we can tell, usually phytoplasmas and cannabis cause what's called witch's brooming, which is when the, um, the plant produces a lot of like shoots and leaves and other tissues kind of in a, in a very haphazard way, kind of like a rat's nest almost. And so that's, a, that's called witch's brooming. And that's a symptom of phytoplasmas. Um, stunting can also be a symptom as well. And if you're noticing leaf hoppers, those could also be a problem because there are some unknown species of leaf hopper in like Nevada, Arizona, um, Huron, also I think uh, China potentially, where um, cannabis has been documented with uh, a few different kinds of these bacterial phytoplasmas. I expect similar to hop latent viroid, uh, they may be an overlooked pathogen that becomes a much, much more massive problem as cultivation increases and uh, cultivators remain uh, rather unsupported infrastructurally speaking. Uh, so uh, have you noticed any other, um, uh, any other vectors? I know that, um, or, or any other things that you think might be associated? I know leafhoppers have been, you know, we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, I've noticed more and more cucumber beetles in groves, especially this year specifically. And I know that they're known for vectoring certain viruses and other plants. Do you think that that might be an issue going into the future? Uh, or, or is there any other ones that we need to look out for? Um, especially as growers that maybe people aren't aware of or, or don't know to look for? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times viruses and their vectors have a pretty intimate relationship. Um, so, and that's why the leaf, the silver leaf white fly is so kind of fascinating because it's, it's a vector for so many kinds of viruses in various families. Um, but generally speaking, I feel like, uh, you know, you kind of have to find that out. Research has to kind of back that up. Um, usually you don't get kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess like, uh, I guess inconsistently that can happen in some cases, but a, a lot of times, uh, it's not, uh, it's like just simply like, um, like mechanically moving the virus from one place to another. That's usually not the case. Um, but with something like hop latent viroid that is transmitted in this way, like when you cut into leaf tissue or even just like having uh, leaves like, you know, brush up against each other, that can be uh, problematic. And um, in that way, again, you kind of want to get research to back that up, but crazier things have happened. Um, so, oh, but uh, I will say this, um, sorry, like generally speaking, most plant viruses are vectored by aphids. About some even speculate at over 50%, possibly 75% of plant viruses are vectored by aphids or the very least others uh, kind of re related like white flies, for example, like leafhoppers, for example, because they have that, that stylet and that stylet can pierce um, the phloem and even pierce cells in some cases without causing a whole lot of like mechanical damage. So uh, they can really facilitate that, like, uh, you know, genetic transfer. So uh, do you want to talk about aphids for a minute and touch on uh, 
on uh, some of the different things that people like to say about uh, how to prevent aphids. I know that uh, a lot of people often say if you get your bricks level above a certain level, um, that will prevent them altogether. Um, uh, it certainly will help make your plant more resistant and produce more secondary compounds to be more resistant to different things, but it's not going to make them immune by any means. Um, do you want to touch a little bit on this? Because you had a really cool post the other day on Instagram about um, some research on culturing and things like that, where they were doing, yeah, I'll let, I'll let you tell us about it. Oh, yeah, no, I, well, I appreciate it. Um, and I do have a, a source if you want me to stream from my... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. I turned it on. Yeah. Already. So how does that work? So do I, I can just like share it, share screen? Yeah, just share screen and then uh, pick the screen you want. Yeah, here we go. Okay, you can see it? Yep. Yeah, so this is just an intro. I, I've, I haven't finished the video itself, um, but I do go over some of the examples from various research reports. And um, uh, yeah, when people mention this, it's sort of surprising. So it's usually in the context of like, you can see, can you see this part <laughs> that I'm waving around? Or no, right? Or can you? I don't know. I always wonder if that's actually possible. Anyways, yeah, so we, here, can this... we can see your okay. mouse. Okay, cool. So, um, so right. So, so bricks level, bricks is the concentration of dissolved solids, and in particular, sucrose um, is what we're dealing with here because it's the most common and abundant plant sugar. And um, bricks is a measurement. Uh, degrees bricks is a measurement of concentration by mass. So we're dealing with something called moles, um, which is sort of a chemistry term that some people might not be familiar with. But um, essentially, like one mole of sugar is like uh, 342 grams of sugar. It's a lot of sugar, a sucrose in particular. Um, and like when people do research on aphid um growth and their ability to feed on plants a lot of times they have been fed artificial diets that aren't even like from plants like they're literally just like uh you know in various cases as the technology has gotten better um basically they're just large sort of a um, pouches of sugar water and usually this is in a molar concentration which is usually like some level of like leader so like in in in, in a in a SI unit. So one liter is about a thousand grams. So like one mole of sugar is like 342 grams of sugar. That means that if you put one mole of sugar in a thousand grams of water, a liter, that's like 34 bricks of sugar. So, you know, you move the decimal point and here you have like 34%. So it's a 34% sugar concentration by mass. Um, and here we have, right, so like this diagram is, is where I make this like kind of simple equation um, because what we see here is uh, dietary sucrose concentration down here in moles. So like these, plant, these uh, aphids, in this case, the pea aphid, um, it's feeding totally fine on uh, molar concentrations of one, which is like 34 percent sugar by weight or by mass. Um, 
what this actual graph shows, and I can go into in great, greater detail, but essentially as the sugar content ramps up, aphid feeding does uh, kind of taper off, at least, at least um, like feeding per like feeding session, essentially, they still go back and eat more, right? They don't like stop completely. Um, and as you can see, they actually still continue to, to drink it up. But um, this is because sugar is actually not, it's not actually a, a phagorepellent, it's a phagostimulant. Um, aphids love sugar and they process practically all of it. They don't always um, use all of the sugar that they process. However, they avoid a lot of the sugar, but it does get processed in their gut. Um, and this is, we're of course just talking about aphids here. Um, I've heard people say that uh, aphids will like kind of like rot on the stem or they'll shrivel up because of this like osmotic pressure or that it'll rot. Um, but again, like that doesn't make sense to me. And in fact, this report goes out of its way to literally make that point that it's, um, or these various research reports to make this point that it, it literally makes no sense that aphids would be able to feed on um, uh, Sorry, <laughs> I've forgotten where I put this actually. But um, yeah, here, so the osmotic pressure of phloem sap is two to four times greater than that of aphid body fluids. So an aphid would be expected to lose water to the lumen uh, of the alimentary tract, the digestive tract, and literally shrivel as they feed. Osmoregulatory collapse is circumvented by downregulation of the osmotic pressure of the gut contents such that the aphid honeydew and hemolymph, which is their blood, uh, basically, is iso, uh, isosmotic. So, right. So, like, I don't get where people are getting this information from. This is, um, this is actually by uh, Angela Douglas, Dr. Angela Douglas, who is a um, plant or insect physiologist. And she's really, um, she's really talented. And she's done a lot of research on aphid feeding. Uh, in, in, in exactly the capacity to understand how it is that insects, herbivorous insects feed on plants and um, how to like use that information in a pest management situation. So for anyone who's been told that like aphids don't have the enzymes or whatever, um, just putting it out here, this is actually not the case. Um, specifically two enzymes are responsible for aphid digestion of high amounts of sugar, um, way more than you would ever really see, or not wait, not totally impossibly possible amounts, especially with fruit, but in like the phloem sieve elements, uh, the BRICS levels typically don't get this high. Sucrase is one enzyme, and this transglycosidase is the other main enzyme, and these break down the sucrose and, uh, and uh, also break down the, the oligosaccharides after that. And make it way, and then that brings the osmotic pressure down uh, for the aphid, and it survives. And uh, yeah, I just want to leave this quote here on that topic. It says, um, "Dietary sugars are important not only as the principal source of carbon, but also because they are the single most important nutritional determinant of aphid feeding." Right? Um, I feel like that's a pretty solid statement um, to leave on. So. I'd let, I mean, I don't like to take uh, research as dogma. Um, you know, there's, 
there's always coconuts, no buts, no coconuts, right? There's always coconuts. Uh, there's always something that could come up uh, that could make this not true. Um, but it seems like there's massive support for the idea that uh, herbivorous insects uh, can handle high bricks plants and even are attracted to the higher, healthier plants. And intuitively, this makes sense to me, but I try not to rely on simply intuition. Yeah, I, they're definitely seeing a lot more aphids uh, in the last couple of years. And then people waiting way too long to really do something about it. Like if you don't act quickly and you find aphids in your facility, they can rip through a facility very quickly and people don't really understand how fast they can replicate. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, aphids are born pregnant and even the ones that are that they're pregnant with are also pregnant. So they're grandmothers when they're before they're born. Yeah. Real quick, I just want to give a shout out to Feed Me's Chopsticks. The, the, those are epic, man. I'm going to have to give me some bud chopsticks now. Thank you, man. Got to do it. I think, and then uh, the, the side effect is you'll probably be better at like with chopsticks at the restaurant. People will be super impressed. You'll be like juggling peas and stuff. Like how? Because you learned, you know, getting high, man. You may not yeah, be able to tell them that you learned getting high, but. I think of everybody I know. I think Chris Trump has the best chopsticks. He has LED ones that light up. <laughs> and you can actually like, like lights up what you're trying to eat. So you can like eat in the dark. I was like, yo, that is the dopest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, Has he thought about just eating by a lamp? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Matthew, what other diseases have you seen a lot of this year? Uh, I know I've seen uh, this year's been particularly bad in, in Oklahoma for septoria for people that yes. are dealing with it. Uh, what are uh, maybe you want to talk about septoria for a minute? And uh, um, yeah, uh, when you thought it, when you said asked me this question immediately, septoria popped into my head. Also Pseudomonas, um, both of which kind of look similar, but uh, they are not the same. So Septoria is a fungus and Pseudomonas is a bacteria. And um, Pseudomonas leaf spot is the disease that certain Pseudomonas um, species cause in cannabis. And um, basically uh, they look like sort of blotches and uh, they usually associated with like a violet kind of a violet halo around, I think. Um, I'm not sure if you can throw up. Yeah, here we go. Um, but like septoria also, so you can see how they both kind of look like this. Um, they have, they have this, uh, um, yeah, like they're sort of the, the interior has been like necrotized and then the outside uh, you have this sort of uh, discoloration. And uh, it does mystify a lot of people when they come across it. And I think the thing that number one gets mistaken for ver these various leaf spot pathogens in general is um, like a spray burn. Even for myself, like I have to always ask, like, did you spray something new recently? Uh, and sometimes that is the case and the, and the damage can look very similar. So it's always helpful to like consider that potentiality. Um, you can't always tell from a picture or video. It's sort of basic to say that, but it's always helpful to remember and remind yourself of, because even somebody like myself, who is inundated with that all the, all the time, constantly in a professional capacity, sometimes your biases do sneak up on you 
and you have to remember and abstain from that um, kind of hasty uh, identification. As for dealing with it, um, generally, I like to use wettable sulfur when possible. I know that's not always uh, cogent with different kinds of uh, systems, and I think that's totally valid too. Um, but for a lot of people who are growing at home, um, I do find that that's really great for a lot of different fungi. But of course, sulfur is sort of broad spectrum in that way. So if you have beneficial fungi, uh, it might be a little bit deleterious to them. It, it might not cause like a sort of like a local extinction event in your, in your grow, uh, depending on how much you use or whatever like that. I also um, find that clients that deal with this uh, do a lot better if they do cut off the leaves that are affected by the, the fungus. I think that helps with the re-inoculation from happening. Oh, is there any others that you're, you're seeing aside from those two uh, becoming more prevalent? I know there's quite a bit of things new to learn on the East Coast. I know I'm running into this orange thrip species in, in Georgia uh, that I have never seen or observed before under the microscope. And uh, uh, a lot more fungal mites that seem to be not really doing any damage to the plant, but just a lot more of them uh, uh, in the soil uh, that seem to be, you know, just stuff that having to familiarize myself with new insects. Um, have you uh, run into anything new or anything that you think people need to be on the lookout for? Yeah, um, I've seen a lot of people ask me recently about Fusarium, which is also a fungal pathogen. Um, and uh, while not all species are vascular uh, colonizers, a lot of them do colonize the, the, especially the xylem water channels. And so it kind of chokes out the plant. And sometimes you see fusarial symptoms as like a, sort of almost like botrytis for people who've dealt with that in the flower, uh, sort of like a grayish um, mass, especially on the stem that kind of like uh, is surrounded by like white necrotized kind of like dry plant tissue. Um, that's usually a pretty telltale sign. And especially if you have it on the base trunk, I would expect that plant to be dying very soon uh, after that, especially at that advanced level. Um, sometimes it causes wilting. And I know a lot of people who have come across uh, they had no problems and then like, two, you know, 48 hours passes or 24 hours passes and suddenly like six plants are like wilting and they're thinking, oh, it's just a water thing, but it's actually a fusarium problem when they go to look at it. And um, I recently posted about termites. Uh, for most in termites, probably uh, from uh, India, uh, but they're also in various other parts of the world, North America in particular. And um, they will go after living plants. They'll also go after building materials too and other woody substances, but uh, they will come and they will strip the cambium off of your plants. And uh, uh, the thing about these termites is that they are very difficult to deal with, even when you're using noxious chemicals and things like that. Um, this is a, this actually does look like a helicoverpa larva. So one of your uh, budworm moth larvae one of the various ones. And that, yeah, you can see the sort of like grayish moldy, uh, not moldy, but like some sort of like grayish uh, necrotized wounding. And that can often come and become like mold. In fact, I think I might even see in the center what might be like a tuft of gray. Yeah, I, that could just very well be it.
that was a good example. Yeah, I, I like that one because you can see how like the, the little budworm causes the fungal infection above and where he fed and then you know his poop kind of caused the secondary infection. It's one of my I've been getting a couple of decent pictures lately. I had a, a good picture the other day of a parasitic wasp laying eggs and the butterfly eggs on a cannabis leaf, which I thought was a, a pretty good picture. That sounds like a really great picture. I can pull it up. Hold on a second. We, uh, um, what are any other insects? Uh, what about borers? A lot of people haven't, uh, don't really find those till late in the season either. Yeah, especially like right around now um, or a little bit beforehand, a lot of people were inundated. Um, I was actually going to point out that you brought up a really great uh, sort of unfortunate reality about cannabis cultivation, especially when it's unprotected from the uh, environment and elements. I'm a fan of growing it in this capacity. Um, oh, yeah, that's a nice web of spider mites. But um, uh whether it's a budworm moth or it's a hemp borer, Eurasian hemp borer, um, whether it's though the latter bores into the stem and then uh, sort of eats up through the stem and might terminate into the bud, eat some of the flower, eat some of the seeds if you're growing for seed, uh, but it'll generally screw up. Um, oh, okay, nice. Um, yeah, I have no idea what I, either species is, but I, I got a bunch of pictures. And then when I switch, switch it to video to try and get a good little video, it took off. And I was like, damn it. Of course. It. I know, right? Well, um, I'm not, I mean, hymenoptera, ants, bees, and wasps are rife with species that look very similar to each other or are morphologically identical, um, which could be very well true here. But I want to say that it might be in the Chalcidae family, maybe. Um, Sometimes, you know, you want, you look at enough wasps of certain families and they just kind of have like a, what the Germans call a bow plan or like a body plan or a body morphology that just kind of, you know, like, you know what an alligator looks like, you know what a crocodile looks like. And so if I said a crocodilian or something, you'd be like, you could like kind of visually kind of think of the qual the physical qualities that they tend to have. And you could kind of know what I'm saying if I say like reptilian or something like this. Um, so I feel like that might be the group, but who knows? That's a massive family. This is the cucumber beetles that we've been seeing heavily, heavily in Oklahoma this year. Spotted cucumber beetle and the striped cucumber beetle are super common. Um, and you also see that that is the damage that they cause. They, they are, um, I think I actually mischaracterized them as flea beetles when they're actually just leaf beetles and flea beetles are a kind of leaf beetle, but these are not those leaf beetles. <laughs> uh, they do eat into the leaves and they cause this sort of like, um, sort of skeletonization or like massive amount of holes in the, in the foliage. And the, the larval forms, they eat at the roots too. So that's another thing to consider. Here's another good example of their damage. They, they'll chew like halfway through the leaf uh, without punching all the way through sometimes too. I highly recommend the bug salt guns. And, and you can get them to, to your kid and just let them run through. And you shoot everyone you can find. It's a good time for everyone, I'm just saying. 
I own me a bug assault uh, gun. I uh, I got one of the first ones when they came out, and I bought very uh, uh, not recently anymore, but I bought the like version 3.0 that came out, and I got the laser sight because uh, I'm a marksman, and I want to use that skill to uh, take down some flies or whatever. If I'm just got to make sure he doesn't get too crazy. He wants to like you know dive over the media bed and like <laughs> take one out. Got to keep him under control. Grenade out. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, this I, I have learned pers- from personal experience that the salt will punch through uh, leaf material. So you got to be uh, correctly Tactic- judicious. You got to be tactical, that's all. You got to be tactical, yes. <laughs> no, that's an excellent picture, uh, Stephen. Yeah. I was trying to throw some more examples. I got a, a lot of them this year. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, right. That's how I feel when people send me pictures and footage. And I'm like, can you get more? Because it would be really great to get more to share with people. And then I always feel bad because I, like, I hope they never have pictures and video for me. Sort of. <laughs> what um uh, is there? Uh, uh, what about spotter lantern bugs or any of these other ones that people are worried about? Do they go after cannabis? Some I've heard that they go after cannabis as well. They do indeed. I have a video on that as well. Um, spotter lantern fly. There's actually some old Chinese uh, agricultural literature. Um, I think kind of around the Cultural Revolution that. Um, talked about spotted lanternfly nymphs in particular on, um, on a cultivated hemp. And uh, although there's not been a whole lot of research on that since then for reasons, um, I wouldn't expect that behavior to change. Plus the spotted lanternfly, uh, it eats tons of different kinds of plants. That's why we're so afraid of it heading to California um, because Apparently, people have done um, some pretty extensive and sophisticated uh, modeling of the spotted lanternfly, like environmental tolerances. And uh, it turns out that it would be really, really good in exactly the places where we cultivate orchards and uh, viticulture for grapes, which would be very, very damaging, probably many dozens of millions, possibly even several billions of dollars uh, in damage, just like has been the case in the East Coast. Uh, If we have East Coast audience members here, which I'm sure that we do, um, they will probably be able to tell better than me about how, how prevalent they are. And they do come from Central to Eastern Asia. A lot of, um, a lot of really competent pests come from like the Eurasian area. Um, I don't, I think some people even ask the question as to whether or not that's just coincidence or whatever. Um, but I think also part of it's because a lot of plants that we grow for, for food uh, do come from these areas as well. Um, or at least they have expanded to these areas in the past. And so a lot of herbivorous insects have a predilection for it. Uh, is there any other good um, native uh, predators that you want to mention? Um, I'm a big fan of wheel bugs. Just don't pick them up or you'll regret it. Um, <laughs> uh, what, are, what are some other maybe native bugs that people haven't heard of or haven't seen before um, that they might want to, you know, not worry about if they see them in the garden? Yes. Uh, a big one I like to talk about 
Uh, people, two big ones that people always ask me about are springtails, which I would call neutral to beneficial in the soil. So people get, um, for, for very understandable reasons, people see them in the soil, having perhaps never gardened before, and they get very uh, anxious and they're afraid that their, their plants are going to be eaten. And I've had people take away, they've, they've been like, I can never get rid of these. I've, I've gotten, I've done so many things and I've uh, trashed all of my crops and I'm never growing again. I've had people literally quit growing because of these springtails, um, which I think is uh, um, very unfortunate, but um, they are not a problem in pretty much all cases. I will say that the only case where I find that they are an issue is if they get to be a really large population and you have seedlings and supple tissue. This is also true for my second uh, organism that's not really a pest that people shouldn't worry about. And that's like the mold mites you were talking about. Um, there's various species, but they tend to have like a, some like long hairs that protrude from their body. Uh, people who keep terrariums for like uh, reptiles might be familiar with them. People who have had uh, kind of like vivariums in general. I've even seen them associated I'm sure you've seen them in, in like when you grow uh, fish in like fish tanks and things like that. They like the, they'll eat all the detritus and the debris and all that free organic matter. And they love moisture. So if you have like a mulch, it can be sometimes very difficult, like a living soil uh, situation um, to, to like kind of get rid of them. Is it the trifagus mites? Is that the, one of the groups of them with the fungal feeders? Yeah. Tyrophagus. Um, yeah yeah that's a that's a genus that's super common um and like some people are allergic right so that's another reason to kind of keep them in control and uh, some people maybe will develop sensitization i think i've said either on this video or a few others but like whenever this topic of like allergies and things come up about the mold mites i like to remind people that um a lot of people uh, are a lot of people who drink instant coffee develop sensitizations to um, to a cockroach uh, exposure, and that's because it's in the instant coffee. Not all instant coffee. I don't. I don't even like. You know. I wanna. I wanna backpedal a little bit in case people are are, are super grossed out. But it does happen. Um, bug parts and things do get into processed foods sometimes. And, and also for that matter, organic foods. And uh, some people just have a very low tolerance for that. Yep. Yeah, so those are the long hairs I was talking about for like, like mold mites. And you can see pretty clearly the idiosoma is the big body and the nathosoma is that like mouth head uh, part. Yeah. And then they have eight legs and that's how you know. But um Sure, hairy dog tick. <laughs> yeah, kinda. Um, but I think you you were also asking other pests that uh, people have been seeing, wasn't it? Or um... yeah, uh, yeah, pests or or beneficials that are native. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was beneficials. I wanted to say that um, hoverflies are one that I love to talk about. Right? Um, they uh, the syrphidae, their larvae. There's a ton of different kinds out there and many of them, the larvae feed on aphids. And I've definitely seen situations where people have uh, misidentified them as caterpillars and knowing how bad budworms are, they kill them. 
But um, if you do find kind of a weird looking caterpillar in your grow, um, especially if it's around aphids, then, uh, you know, be careful and uh, take a really good look at it and see if you can't find a match with a hoverfly larvae. I do keep some observational footage, um, many good close-up examples on my YouTube channel for just that kind of occasion. Um, a lot of times they're like a green color, but sometimes they can be like a mottled brown. They're kind of pretty. I feel like the patterning on their bodies are kind of, is, is an attractive patterning. Um, and they, uh, you can kind of keep, you can tell them different from caterpillars because they don't got a head capsule. Caterpillars tend to have this like hard head with like the eyes, you know, and the big mouth and uh, hoverflies lack all of that as larvae. Um, they just kind of taper at one end, um, but they do kind of undulate when they move a little bit. They'll like, they'll like cast around and then they'll like pick a place. Yeah. So on, yeah. So on the right hand side, you have the head, which is like sunken into the body at this point, cause it's, it's reached out and hooked an aphid and then pulled that aphid into its mouth. Um, and then at the other end is the, uh, kind of like the, the foot, you know, so it moves in that way. And then, yeah, uh, I think that was a good picture of a hoverfly that you had on the next yeah, a lot of hoverflies, not all, but a lot of hoverflies do tend to have this like wasp or bee-like look to them. Uh, this like yellow-black coloration is super common. Sometimes they're even iridescent, like a lot of wasps are. Um, but as flies, they only have two pairs of wings and they have those little, um, oh, I'm forgetting the technical term, but that those like small antennae that they have. Um, and they have those big eyes. And they also hover in place, kind of like a hummingbird can do. And that's how you know you're dealing with them. And to attract them, uh, a lot of people ask how they can do this. They really like nectar and pollen from like uh, a sweet alisum or maybe like some pepper plants or fennel. I find this really attractive for them. Um, there's a lot of various like herbaceous plants with like little flowers and nectaries. And they love to go around those. Various parasitic wasps will also really love plants like that. So you can get kind of a, a great um, uh, population of beneficial wasps and, and flies that will predate and parasitize um, aphids and, and moth eggs and things like that. Uh, if you kind of plant these plants around your area, uh, but different, but you know, your mileage will, will <laughs> your mileage will vary depending on that area in question. Yeah, those guys, aureus, uh, hoverfly, or rove beetles are all kind of good roaming hordes wow. of, of murder machines to kill anything that tries to kill after your plants. Agreed. And they all tend to like these sort of like uh, plants with small flowers in like large uh, uh, volumes. And yes, that's what their egg, the hoverfly eggs look like this. And, and so that can be another wow. way Another giveaway is that these long oblong eggs are around a colony of aphids. If that's the case, you might want to let the caterpillar or the caterpillars, you might want to let the larvae do their job. Yeah, those are definitely a good one to have for sure. Uh, what, are, what advice do you have uh, 
for people trying to, and I, this is one that, you know, shit, even with all the different stuff that I know, we still have issues with once in a while. Um, what is your advice this time of year? Everyone's dealing obviously with um, uh, botrytis and caterpillars. What, what is your main, you know, what advice do you have for people doing where, you know, having caterpillar issues? A, um, a research report actually just came out uh, by, by a lot of people uh, who are doing sort of hemp research and cannabis research. And specifically, they were writing this research about um, budworms and other pests too, but specifically kind of like the, the um, corn earworm that people are dealing with and the resulting botrytis that it causes. Um, and so the, the main problem with it is that even if you kill it, see, because when the moths come in and they lay their eggs on the plant, you've kind of already lost somewhat. You can apply things regularly in sprays and stuff like that, but if you don't catch it early enough, and I mean, if you don't have the labor or the time, especially as a home grower, you know, but also at a commercial setting, uh, if you don't have the ability to like have a very vigilant, um, scouting and application setup, which is also costly, um, then it's very easy for that to spiral out of control. So my main advice to people is that the problem is that most of these caterpillars will be a problem even if you kill them because they'll either die in the bud or on the bud and that can cause problems and mold can grow on the dead body. Um, so that's an issue. So my advice is to eliminate that potential from happening if possible with some sort of physical barrier. And I feel like a broken record because that's what I've been telling a lot of people in a lot of cases. Um, oh, that's a nice bee fly. You know, flies don't get their, cre their credence for being amazing pollinators. Um, I think flies actually, a lot of fly species do rival various like bees and wasps as pollinators so um yeah not all flies are gross house flies or whatever so anyways mesh screen big deal um th uh, specifically what's called thrip screen is um really nice because it goes out it also eliminate not eliminates but also prevents the ingress of like thrips even which are incredibly tiny uh elongated insects uh, spider mites as well um and of course the mods can't get through it but mods also can't get through like larger pore uh screen which might be less expensive or easier for you to come across if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of options um that's something that you can do too mosquito netting would also work if you're um growing on a budget and you don't your access is limited those are also, um, you know, fantastic choices, more narrow in their scope of things they can prevent. And of course you have to apply it correctly too. Um, but I find that that is the best investment for the money because you only have to apply it once. And once you've done it appropriately and correctly, um, they can't get through. It's physically impossible. And the caterpillars won't move from another plant away from you onto your plants. Some caterpillars do this. They have that behavior like cutworms or armyworms do, which are also a problem in cannabis to a degree. But um, these caterpillars don't do that. So that's my advice for that. 
Oh, actually, you know what? I do have one other thing about those boars. Now that's nice. Nice action shot there. That is a uh, robber fly, part of the acilidae, and that and it's taking down a grasshopper or some sort of like uh, orthopteran. And uh, were were about three or four inches long, and <laughs> they were. Huge. I believe it. Yeah, uh, uh, robber flies, perhaps like rivaling dragonflies. Uh, I guess they're different weight classes. I think robber flies are like the most lethal and most impressive aerial hunters of their like size category. Um, and that's how, that's how they do it. They'll just like, literally they'll take hornets, they'll take grasshoppers, they'll take bees, um, they'll take anything uh, that's like sufficiently sized and they'll those just bear it down. Doesn't for matter. Those you, for those of you in the South, you guys call those skeeter eaters. Uh, yeah. I bet they take a lot of like mosquitoes. Yeah, mosquitoes and crane flies and things are like no contest. Uh, these guys are deft aerial predators. Oh, but I was going to say that um, uh, for the um, for the caterpillars, um, I've actually I lost my train of thought. I guess I'll also say that like you can get trick grandma wasps for the eggs. They'll parasitize the eggs. Uh, so that looks like a that looks like an army worm for sure. Uh, it could be a yellow striped. I know it doesn't look yellow here, um, but it kind of reminds me of a fall army worm or yellow striped army worm. A lot of the caterpillars of different species look very similar, um, and they also could have different forms. Uh, it does look a lot more yellower when you when you zoom in. Thanks for doing that. I, I feel like faintly it's more, it's a little bit washed out from the bright sun. Um, but uh, yeah, so those, that'd, that'd be like an army worm and those things can, crop, those can uh, crawl on the ground. And uh, they, They're called cutworms because if you have like a young stem of an herbaceous plant, uh, they'll just, um, they'll girdle it and they'll cut right through it. And uh, that is very frustrating. And right now in the Midwest, they're a massive, massive problem. I follow a lot of uh, pathologists and USDA researchers and entomologists on Twitter. And uh, it's a lot of people are talking about it. It's really bad, like in Kentucky and Oklahoma uh, and other places like that. Really wish I remembered what that thing was about the mods. I'm sure I'll remember after the podcast. This is one of the other super common ones that we see here. So um, I know it's a little bit blurry, but it kind of reminds me of some of the um, tortricid moth larvae that I come across. This sort of like very small um, diamondback moths are what I think of, which I'm sure a lot of people have actually encountered, especially if you grow uh, brassica plants like broccoli and, your and that kind of thing. Uh, and also crucifers. Uh, they love those, uh, those kinds of plants. And what tortrix, tortricid, tortricid moths do is they like, they're called leaf rollers. And so they use the silk and they'll like bind the leaf or the flower material or whatever and they'll fold it and they'll eat in this shelter so even if you apply like a biocontrol agent like a 
fungus or a bacteria or something, um, they might not make contact with it, uh, which makes them very challenging pests to deal with. So this is the one that's, I have no idea what it is, but I've got a couple pupa and we hatched them. Um, so this is the one that's going after the stuff heavily in Georgia. Again, no idea what it is, but you know, if it helps somebody online by showing you this in the adult form, this is the caterpillar that's, that's hitting the hemp out there hard. I really like that. I appreciate you doing that because that's all it needs. I actually don't recognize it. It looks like a lot of, uh, it looks like a very similar body shape to other moths that I've seen uh, in the past. And I think if I had a key in front of me, I might be able to make a family level identification maybe. Um, but moths truly are one of the, I mean, they're the, one of the four biggest orders. Um, so there's like thousands of species, but that's great because somebody who's more knowledgeable about them might come along and take a look at this. So thank you for sharing that, honestly. And I think it's a male based off of the antennae. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was, absolutely. Yeah. It, actually, why don't you explain that to people? Um, so the antennae, the reason why I say it's a male is because a lot of moth uh, antennae are uh, uh, kind of like pinnate like this. They have all of these little like um, extrusions and that's so that they can pick up the sex pheromones and other sorts of like chemical signals. Um, in the air and then they use that uh, to guide them to their target. We also had uh, a better example of that also on the same trip. One of my favorite moths in North America, a Luna moth. And you can see here that again, it's a male has that same structure, the feathery yes. that collection structure. They are um, awesome if you've never seen one. I was just, uh, I think you saw it. I was just posting about the Luna mods and how that little tassel at the bottom. Do you remember, have you seen the post about the, um, not the moth as moth scales as metamaterials, but um, that uh, it actually is a decoy it's a biosonar decoy. So if a bat is echolocating and the, the, the echolocations bounce off of this decoy here, um, then the bat will think that that is a body or something that it should attack. It'll think it's like the mass of the insect when it isn't. Um, and so that's really amazing to me <laughs> because, um, that combined with the moth scale metamaterial research, really, it's just amazing to me, the level of like um, sophistication that these structures go through. And a big old fuzzy teddy bears too. Oh yeah. Big old fuzz. Anyways, he was on the windowsill in the morning. I thought that was cool. Always a good omen, you know? I know, right? <laughs> Plus, if you crush two of the wings together and you add a little bit of a giant's toe or something, you might get a antidote. That's what I've heard. As a, uh, That's it. That definitely is like a fall armyworm or a yellow-striped armyworm. It's definitely Spidoptera. Um, 
because of the, the the markings, the black and the yellow line, the black holes, the yellow lines, and also uh, on where the head is that like that like a uh, upside down V is um, pretty telling. Those are pretty common symptoms or uh, uh, morphological traits. I'll, uh, uh, when you get to do outdoor farms, it's all kinds of uh, fun new things to eat your plants. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> At least I guess you know what it is, right? Oh yeah. We had uh, some of uh, this was popped up. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. Uh, just out of entertainment. Uh, someone found this in the back of a hydro store the other day. That was pretty good. <laughs> Don't ever use that if you ever someone tries to sell it to you, by the way. In the back What's of the, the hydro uh, store or under the counter? Um, secretly? Uh, one of the... What's the uh, active ingredient of that? Well, it was, the, it has like, um, uh, what's it called? Um, it begins with an A. Ivermectin? Ivermectin, or not, yeah, Ivermectin, yeah. Iver, uh, yeah, it's a Ivermectin, yeah. Yeah, it's got to have it in it, so. Ivermectin? There was something else I was going to ask you, and I fucking forgot it. Shit. I'll think of it. Um, what other uh, things do you think uh, people should know, I guess, currently with uh, what's going on? I, I know that I found uh, a product called Velifer, which is a significantly more aggressive Bavaria bassiana strain than anything else I've used before. It seems to work on leaf hoppers. It seems to work on aphids, and it supposedly works on spider mites as well. So who knows if it works on any other mite species, but it seems to be just super aggressive. Have you worked with it at all? And, and uh, is there any other products maybe people aren't familiar with that you think people should know about? I think we did. I think that is the case, yeah. But I don't, off the top of my head, remind, or I don't remember the active ingredient in that product. Do you? Is it a bio... Bavaria Bassiana. Yeah, Bavaria all... Bassiana. Yeah, okay, okay. There are so many products of Bavaria Bassiana. It's hard to keep track for me. Uh, well, uh, people who know me know that I do love me, my Bavaria Bassiana. It's actually, I was reading a, a, a research report on it uh, as, a, as a myco-insecticide. And I guess it is apparently the most or, or perhaps second to like some bacillus species. Um like the most researched, um, like, like basically uh, uh, insect fungal pathogen, which is pretty cool um, and very vindicating when I talk about it so much. But yeah, this strain PPRI 5339 is not one that I'm um, as, a, as commonly encountering as like the GHA strain. Um, and there's a few others too. And I'm, I'm excited because uh, different strains can have different uh, virulence traits and effects. And um, as we use it more often, we'll probably be able to produce more virulent um, uh, fungal strains. A lot of Bavaria bassiana tends to be an endophyte in a lot of plants too. And so it might be exciting to have like a dual um, uh, pathogen virulence that's really high as well as maybe modulating some of the um, immune system responses and effects in, uh, in plants, which it already does in some cases, which are beneficial for the cultivator and for the plant. 
Yeah, what I found interesting about this particular one, there was a greenhouse I was working on. They also had two types of leaf hoppers because of some leaks they had and, and people, anyways, long story short, they had two different species of leaf hoppers in there. 48 hours after application, they were all dead. And that was, that was real impressive to me because they've been pretty bulletproof with just about everything I've thrown at them to date. So um, that, that was to me is the thing that excites me the most about this particular strain. But the fact that it works on all these different soft bodies as well as mites is uh, very unique for about, you know, I don't know of any other strain that's, you know, advertised for two spotted spider mites. Um, that's the very- Actually, you know, it, it's, it's funny you mention it like that because I agree with you. Uh, in some cases, I see Bavaria bassiana. I've even seen research that shows mycosis uh, of uh, spider mites by Bavaria bassiana, and I think other fungal pathogens too. Um, so it's definitely documented in literature, but I think the reason why it's often not um, advertised this way is because the mite physiology is a little bit different, and it's possible that that's one of the big benefits of this strain is that it might be more optimized. Sorry, there was a funny meme somebody made about our episode. Uh, I'll have to send it to you. I refuse to go in private chat. It was pretty good. Um, uh, do you have any new content that you are uh, got coming out soon? I know you have the Aphid Bricks video and some other cool stuff coming out. What's some of the other cool stuff people can look forward to on your channel and your content? Yeah, absolutely. So, um... I do have the video about aphid feeding coming out soon, probably in this coming week, although I try not to uh, get people's hopes up. <laughs> um, I have, of course, in November, uh, your uh, uh, webinar series that I'm excited to talk about. Um, and we'll be talking more about kind of the things that we talked about here. There is pests in uh, cannabis, things to watch out for, uh, new pests, old pests, and also um, like kind of like some of the things about like bricks and, and uh, general plant health uh, uh, research, which I think would be really interesting to, to go about. And cannabis research in general is getting a lot more funding. So I'm very excited to see that. Um, I have other projects in the works, but I cannot talk about them yet. Not to sound too ominous, but uh, I, it will be fun when I do get to talk about them soon. Um, a little bit boring, huh? But uh, I guess that is what's on my mind. No, uh, so you're regularly on, um, uh, I'm sorry, it's escaping me. What's the name of the other podcast that you're on every week? Um, oh, uh, Cheap Home Grow Podcast. Yeah, tell, tell everybody about that because that's a really awesome resource and you put a lot of time into that every week. Yeah, so, um, so the Cheap Home Grow Podcast, right? been doing it for about two years now with various other people. Uh, Jack Greenstock is the, the current host. And um, I think we even have some people in the YouTube chat currently. Uh, uh, Tao, the American one is there. Um, we've had uh, Chad, uh, not a regular panelist, but uh, still a friend of the show, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, other people as well uh, that, I, that I recognize in chat have also been on the Cheap Home Grow, have either been on or attend the Cheap Home Grow podcast. And we talk about various topics, honestly. Uh, Brandon Rust is on the panel. Uh, Spartan Grown from Instagram um, is on the panel. Uh, 
predicated breeding, which is now um, uh, pure breeding, I believe, um, and uh, Noah the Groa, and uh, various other people too. And we're trying to get more people from the chat online. So if you're interested in that, um, we're definitely taking people on uh, to talk about their grow, talk about their situation, and guide the conversation. And I think that's very, like somebody, I believe Fumador said earlier, uh, it's very Socratic, uh, you know, that we ask questions and just simply uh, uh, be flexible. Because I want to answer questions relevant to what people are dealing with and not be like didactic and uh, uh, telling people what is all the time. Very cool. Oh yeah. Um, so what about other, you put out a lot of other content on your um, Patreon and some of the other stuff. Uh, what's some of the other cool content uh, ways people can get your content and learn from you? So um, I do have a Patreon. I do get a lot of messages on Instagram and other social media platforms for uh, all kinds of things, uh, including even some, uh, some clients and uh, sort of business venues and things. So that's the, I mean, that's the hallmark of the future, right? That's, that's how it is now. Um, and I, I don't uh, knock it, but uh, I do try to help as many people as possible. And so if you do have questions, um, although I will eventually probably get around to them, I'm quickly becoming aware that that is not always going to be the case. I now get dozens of questions per day. So I'll have definitely in the low double digit messages every day. Um, Sometimes it's continuations of conversations from before. Sometimes it's new people. Um, but uh, I'm always happy to answer people's issues, especially when they're super simple. But that's why I have the Patreon now. So I check that much more regularly. It's easier for me to check it. And it's also easier for me to give uh, information uh, and link to videos or articles or things like that. Um, it's just a much more, it's just a much more conversationally geared uh, system and my patreon is um at the very at the very least one dollar a month uh it's just much more important to me to be able to help a bunch of people as possible than it is for me to like you know gouge people for prices or whatever but i do have various rewards for people at different tier levels so um, if you want me to take a stab at a subject that you're really passionate about um, or if there are questions that you are more curious about, you can come across them or they'll be given higher priority if you're at a higher tier level, essentially. And at the highest tier level, uh, you can even, um, you know, have your own video, essentially, and, uh, and whatever topic you'd like. Um, and that's kind of that rolls over month to month. So um, I think that's been a really cool way to uh, engage with people and answer uh, relevant questions for folks. Um, yeah. And of course, professionally speaking, I have zenthanol.com where you can contact me there. But to be honest, uh, also on Twitter, I'm at SyncAngel as well as on Instagram at SyncAngel. But um, uh, yeah, I uh, do. I've gotten a lot more of my uh, clientele from Instagram, interestingly. Um, so yeah, those are the various places where you can come across my work. And um, I, uh, I'm excited to, it's kind of still surreal to me to be helping as many as, as I can, kind of internationally too. I'm sure you've also interacted with that as well, Steve. I was going to say you, you did a presentation for the Chinese Aquaponics Association on, on insects and stuff. 
and all kinds I really, of that's true and i really enjoyed the uh, opportunity for that and um uh, yeah, i appreciate you facilitating it there's a, a huge need for people like yourself uh that are, you know, both, uh, you know, helping people on a commercial scale, but also putting out good information or at least identification information so people are aware of what the heck is going on. There aren't a lot of good resources that people can have, you know, the level of access that they can get to you. And it definitely, are, you're definitely one of the, the great uh, uh, resources that the community has in terms of pest management and stuff like that. So uh, thanks for all the work that you do. Um, uh, if people like find something weird or can catch something or something in their grow, how do you suggest preserving it or otherwise capturing it temporarily before um, trying to you know, get it to the right place uh, without possibly spreading it and making it worse? And that's a good question. Uh, not that the other ones weren't, but that's a really great question. I should make a video about, honestly. So uh, if it's like a bug-like thing, some sort of insect or maybe even mite, um, there's a few things you can do. Um, I honestly uh, support people trying to get some basic sort of entomological gear, like an, like what we call like an aspirator, for example. Um, although there are some um, disadvantages to using things like that, like because you're sucking in air. And so sometimes uh, you got to be a little bit careful with that. And it's for smaller insects and collecting them, like parasitoid wasps and things like that and aphids. But you can also just put it in like a container um, and, and like the biggest thing to do is you want to first capture it unharmed as much as possible because insects and, and mites are delicate and sometimes fast and difficult. So if you can capture it like in a, in a, in a glass container or a vial or something and take it out of your grow space, you're practically already there. Then at that point, it becomes a question of what you want to put it in for preservation and where you, what you want to do with it to process it. Maybe you want to just take some really good focused pictures. Um, I recommend always doing that because at least you'll have the picture, right? And if it's a good picture and it's kind of closely focused and it's not super blurry, you can still take it to a professional, especially when it's local to your area. If somebody like myself is not available or many of the other wonderful IPM specialists that exact that uh, exist out there or, or extension specialists. Um, in other cases, you might actually want to send the physical organism to somebody like one of these uh, specialists. And in that case, you might want to take ethanol. Um, higher grade ethanol is better. Usually in my experience, I like to get like the, in fact, I have a bottle right here. Um, this Coptec is a 200 proof pure ethanol. Uh, might be hard to get a hold of in some places, but uh, that's really great. And uh, it'll preserve them very well. And um, then you can like ship them to somebody or you can at least keep them for a long period of time. Um, this is great too, having a little um, a digital microscope. Um, I have basically something like this. I have a uh, rudimentary tier DinoLite that serves a great purpose. Their higher tier uh, equipment is really good, honestly, but it's a little bit too pricey for me. And the other problem is that I um, would not want to risk it being damaged, which in a greenhouse setting is very possible. So, you know, I, I, it's like uh, I bought some super steel knife um, that I'm really proud of and I really like. And if I really need to use something that's sharp and it doesn't get dull, I can use it. 
But uh, at the same time, I don't also want to lose it. So uh, you run into that paradox. In video games, I was always the guy who never uses the potions and the consumable items because what if I want it for something else? And so I have that tendency and a lot of people do, I feel. Um, but Dynalite's a good, uh, a good place to look for some uh, close-up uh, visual assistance. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah. Which one do you recommend? There's all different oh, ones. The entry oh, level yeah. are, are not that are are kind of pricey, but some of the nice. Steve, do you ones, even have to ask? You get the baller one. You get the one that's encrusted with diamonds and gold and platinum and everything <laughs> I else. I know, the right? Most expensive one, the special edition, yeah. the 2021 special edition one. What the fuck? Yeah, right. you got to get the Space Jam. You need that one, otherwise your garden will suffer. With Nike, Bizcon, the double barrel vapes, and they had one that was worth like five hundred thousand dollars. It was like solid gold and diamond encrusted and all this other shit. <laughs> I can oh, totally wow. see them doing that with the fucking microscopes, having like, you know, bling, bling, bling scopes. Bling scopes. Uh, I think you've, um, <laughs> I think you seeded the universe with that topic. Now, now it's definitely going to come to pass. Um, welcome, internet. Yeezy scope. I, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the Yeezy scope. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I want to say that the, uh, um, uh, the thing that the the qualities that make some of the higher tier ones attractive to me uh, are things like the ability to, to um, uh, control like your light intensity. That can be really useful to not have it just like 100% on or off. Um, you know, having some granularity there can be really great. Um, and I'm thinking about investing and in getting one that's a little bit more like that. Um, but you can get sort of uh, microscopes that are like this for a lot less money that still kind of do the job. Uh, you're also paying kind of for the software and the support. So that's another thing to keep in mind. It's not just the, uh, uh, the mechanical ability of the microscope. Awesome. Well, uh, I don't want to keep you the whole night. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention uh, before we cut you loose? Yeah, I think so. Um, whenever I talk about something like, uh, like the bricks and the plant health topic, I think it's always important to clarify kind of what I mean, because I think it's something that a lot of people are, are very, um, very curious about and also very passionate about plant health, right? Like when you grow plants, that's pretty much, that's the main thing that you're going for. Um, so I want to say that like, here's the thing about the sugar content in plants, right? So Sucrose is the, the photosynthate, right? It is the, um, uh, it is the thing that the plant is making in photosynthesis that powers metabolic processes, right? So if a plant has a lot of those and is sending those down to various sources or sinks from the source, the leaves into the sink, like the roots or fruits or aphids, when they, when they put their stylet into the plant and they let the the pressure overwhelmed them into their body, right? These are all sinks for the photosynthate. Um, that's actually really great. And having a lot of that sugar is a good thing, right? It is, um, it's kind of like, because when you're, when you're measuring that BRICS level, you are essentially seeing how good the photosynthesis is essentially. Um, and, and, but like, it's also important to know that like BRICS levels, the sugar content, 
is constantly in flux. It has to be, right? Because like I just said, it's constantly moving from the sources to the sinks and in various veins and, um, and parts of the plant, it's going to be very different. And that's why also aphids and other insects, when they're, uh, if they are the kinds that only feed on sap or xylem and sap, they are, um, they're going to be using gustatory cues to sort of tell, is this where I want, is this even a plant that I want, that I'm wanting to feed on? And um, so really, like, especially with sunlight, like radiation for the sun and for, or whatever else light source uh, is like a really important part of bricks level. Sugar content goes down a lot at nighttime because photosynthate is not being produced. If you're a C3 plant, if you're a C4 plant, uh, it is different, I believe. So that's when I think a lot of that is actually happening. And then uh, that's a water saving and efficiency boosting process. Can you explain um, the difference with that? Like what the difference is between those two types of plants? I can. So uh, not, not like in super detail. I used to know it a lot better off the top of my head, but essentially, um, so C3 plants are doing that constantly, doing that photosynthesis process constantly. There's a um, photosystem one and photosystem two. Uh, and without getting super technical, basically, um, the photosynthesis process is actually fundamentally flawed in that uh, sometimes you make rubisco and sometimes you make um, uh, not what you're trying to make. Uh, and there's like, I think this happens about 20% of the time with the interactions, depending on the plant or whatever. So that's the, that's one of the inefficiencies about the photosynthetic process with the C3 plant. A C4 plant is like a bromeliad or like a, like pineapple, for example. Um, and other sorts of like plants like this. And um, what they do is because of the, um, the photosynthetic uh, physiology or machinery, they uh, are able to capture a lot of the um, precursors essentially for the photosynthesis process. And they capture all of that and they lock it away essentially at daytime. And when it's nighttime, uh, they can open up their stomata and have this like the, the transpiration occur. And so that saves them water inside the plant too, which is a boon. Um, but also it means that they, because they kind of have it uh, locked away in this sort of metabolic stasis, they can control it better and it happens much more efficiently. So um, that's, a, that's like my summary of the difference between those two systems. Uh, the other question I was curious if you could touch on, so there's an interesting white paper for, about garlic mustard being um, a toxic to local mycorrhizae and actually like killing off mycorrhizae locally as a way of anti-competition. Um, uh, is there any other plants that you can think of that would be kind of the, the opposite or the anti-companion plant? Uh, is there plants that you'd be like, yo, like keep them the fuck up out of your garden? Like, uh, uh, cilantro would be one that I can think of that is just a root aphid magnet. Like root aphids just love to hone in on cilantro and, and it'll bring them right into your garden. So um, uh, what are some of the other plants that you can think of where you're like, under no circumstance, did you ever put that plant near your cannabis plant? Uh, yeah, so there are, I mean, there are going to be plants that I'm, not, that I'm not aware of that may have this effect generally and also more specifically 
uh, to cannabis, right? And um, that also gets to another myth that I think we talked about when you were on, right? Is that um, on the cheap home grow is that like people have this perspective that plants are all kind of like nice and they're they're not competing with each other and it's all a happy hunky dory forest. Um, and that's not the case. Plants are constantly competing with each other at the very least for like uh, access to light, right? For the photosynthesis we were just talking about. Oh, um, the, the same way that like coral reefs, coral reefs are a war zone. People don't even yes. know that. They're constantly releasing all kinds of toxic compounds, trying to kill their neighbor, trying to smother them so that they can get that sunlight. And plants do the same thing. They call it it's allopathy and, and plants, right? Allo- and allopathy. Yeah, allopathy. Yeah, or allelopathy. Allelopathy. Yeah, yeah. and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was told that uh, the hulls of sunflower seeds are phytotoxic to certain plants, for example. And and to fungi, Um, explicitly, you know, people tell you if you're doing mycoculture to to remove the sunflower seeds for that reason. Oh, okay. Um, uh, another example. So like, that would be like, a, from like a perspective, like they, they create some sort of chemical, uh, the classic example is the, um, the jugalone or hugalone from, um, black walnuts in their hulls. Uh, that is very toxic to other plants. A lot of other plants that aren't, that don't have a resistance to it. Um, so like these things do happen. And, um, but as far as like anti-companion plants from the perspective of like, uh, pest mitigation specifically, lots of plants. So like the viral plants I was talking about, I, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Bee curly top virus infects tons of different plants um, and not even uh, creates symptoms in all of them. So you don't even know uh, necessarily that you're even next to plants that can have it. Then meanwhile, some beet leaf hopper comes in, sucks it up, goes to your plants, feeds one time, maybe two times, and then uh, yeah, be good top virus. So, but um, if you got root aphids, uh, a pl- uh, plants that they tend to feed on, they have two main kinds of hosts. They have grass hosts in the summer and spring, and they have um, sort of an arboreal, uh, sort of like tree-like uh, host profile in the autumn and winter. And so, rice root aphids like your prunus species, so like your plums and uh, peaches and apricots and things like that. Um, They go after other plants too, but they also will go after tons of like feral grasses and things like that. Uh, That's super common in my experience. And uh, my rice root aphid pest primer video goes over like uh, rowan and uh, rye and barley and wheat and uh, peppers as well. Um, There's a lot of plants that they go after. So if you're aware of them on your property or if you're trying to grow kind of like a food forest situation, which I'm a huge fan of, you have to consider the fact that some of these pests will feed on multiple other plants, especially the ones that you're trying to use to sustain yourself. Um, so that's, a, that's a, a, a challenge, I think, in uh, certain contexts. Absolutely. Um, uh, do you have any last... Um... Uh, maybe things that people need to, um, uh, how would you suggest someone document something that they found and they're like, man, I have no fucking idea what the hell this is. 
Um, people take like one bad photo of a leaf or two and send it to both of us. And they're like, what, what the hell's going on? Um, uh, how would you tell people how to properly document something if they were trying to ask for help properly? I think uh, getting a full plant picture so I can see how much that issue is spread, uh, getting a top leaf, bottom leaf pictures, um, you know, what are some other things that people could do to help, you know, make it easier for them to get help? So, um, yeah, pictures are a great way to go about it. Like you say, kind of getting a full plant picture perspective is really useful, especially if you have like, maybe you don't know what they are, but if it's like a bunch of them, you know, if you're seeing some sort of dysfunction, you should document it because it could be associated, but it might not be. Uh, and so discretion and caution are, are really key when it comes to like diagnosing problems. Like I said, people will get, they'll see a problem, they'll see a springtail, they'll think the springtail caused the problem, and then they never get rid of them because they're hard to get rid of, and then they don't realize that that wasn't even your problem. But getting a picture of the organism is really crucial, um, taking the amount of time necessary. If it doesn't like crawl away super quickly or jump away or something like this, if it seems rather stationary and unmoving, uh, you know, at least taking it, putting it on like a, a table or some sort of like solid surface to like get a nice, clear, crisp photo, multiple photos, and also video footage is great. Not just to send to somebody like me, but to other people, like I said before. And so, and you'll always have that, right? Because if it scurries away or if somebody kills it or you know, whatever, you still have that control over that, inf that little bit of information and you can always reference it. Uh, when I train people for IPM um, crop scouting techniques, this is something that I uh, adamantly and vehemently profuse because um, I know I've worked with a lot of people uh, outside of the cannabis industry who are kind of traditional farmer type folk who may maybe are not very comfortable with um, computers or things like this, but a lot of people in the cannabis industry are relatively young in comparison. Um, and uh, they know how to operate a camera and they know how to upload to YouTube. And that right there is really helpful. Like here in this video, for example, you can see that the rice root aphid, you know, I love to mention this, their species name is Rufi abdominale. That means red abdomen. And as you can see here, they do tend to have kind of like a reddish orange, uh, like latter part of their body. Um, so sometimes, you know, there is a, a hint in the name if you're willing to learn the Latin, I guess. Um, so yeah, taking pictures, taking samples, taking more samples than you think you need is very helpful because uh, don't I know it. Sometimes you will only take a couple pictures and you'll think that's fine. And then uh, you'll say, I'll come back later when the lights are on or whatever. And then they're not there anymore. And uh, you know, that, that can be tragic. Although if they're not there anymore, that's also a good, good sign, I suppose. Just a little bit closer. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, and, and yeah, and they can be kind of this greenish shade and they can also be kind of like a darker blackish color in my experience. So. Uh, knowing that also uh, a, a lot of insects can have different phenotypes, uh, especially ones that are very dramatically different 
than others can be um, important to keep in mind. That's why documentation with photos and video is just as important as writing it down. Having some sort of a journal or some sort of like a spreadsheet or something that you use um, to, to track. Also, the, this is a nymph. This is the younger one, completely different color. They're orange. Versus... Yeah, see, that's like a yellowish color, right? So, yeah. And then I've the, also... adults, the flying, you have the winged adults, which are in that video that I had. And those ones look completely different. Again, their body structure is completely different. So sometimes you even have insects that have uh, lantern bugs, uh, stink bugs, have radically different morphologies uh, depending on the age of the, the insect. It's what makes it's what makes insects so successful. One of the main things, like, um, there's two main groups of insects, really three, but two big ones: the holometabola and the uh, hemimetabola. I think, or the I'm forgetting the other name. But basically, there are insects that start like with a larval form and a pupa form and an adult form, like a caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly kind of a thing, or a maggot pupa fly or whatever all of the insects that are like that descend from a common ancestor then there's the other ones like crickets and grasshoppers where the the young ones basically just look like the old ones but they're a little bit smaller and maybe don't have wings the ones that do the best the most successful the four biggest groups of insects are flies moths beetles and wasps ants and bees so um those all have like a larva pupa adult lifestyle that radical change between the larva and the adult stage allows the adults and the larva to not compete with each other for food for the most part and that's the key to their success plus they're very um short-lived and they rapidly reproduce so they can evolve quickly that's a really that's some really good footage yeah, we, Marty and I both have, have gotten some really nice footage of various insects that we run into over the years with consulting. And we try to, it's just some of the different footage we include in our classes as reference material. It's really There's useful. Actively feeding on a root. Right. And you can definitely see the stylet there. Um, uh, you know, it makes sense uh, that aphid, that root aphids would feed on the roots, right? Because the roots are a natural sink for the plant sugars, right? So it's right there where a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of that amazing uh, photosynthate is being passed into the roots. And then many people in your audience already know that uh, a lot of that sugar goes to feed microorganisms, um, beneficial, uh, neutral, and otherwise. So that's another reason why a high bricks level is super useful um, for a plant. You know, it, it gives it a lot of resources to work with for its immune system and also for its extended immune system, I guess, in, in the shape of the microbiome. But uh, many other things want those sugars as well, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always fun to, you know, get this show off of this funky, I'm sure you have stuff that makes all of my stuff look like garbage because you see way more bugs than I do. So, uh, um, I watched, is that some of the different things that you have on, uh, in your resources, what are some of the different things that people, uh, you kind of touched on that earlier, but with the different um, stuff you have on your Patreon? Um, so I try to get, actually, I try to make a lot of my information uh, not um, sequestered away 
to only my patrons. It's really important for me for, to make that information freely accessible, but it's the supporters that help allow that to be the case. Um, I've definitely used some of the funds to buy equipment for camera uh, operation or for a software and things like that uh, and other sort of miscellaneous. So it's been really useful. Uh, but I do like to make that information widely accessible. Uh, rude mealybugs, right? Recently, I was talking about uh, a person from Chile who contacted me with root mealybugs, and then I shared that. I had mentioned that I had uh, documented it in the past, but also was documenting it here. And uh, a lot of other people mentioned that they had also seen it as well in their cannabis, and, and also it's known in other plants too. And um, I really liked that because uh, not only did sharing it give me more information, but also other people who weren't aware of it now know about this pest. Uh, mealybugs are less common in my experience in cannabis, but um, I'd rather know a pest that's not well known than not know it at all, but I'm biased. We've had a, this was that one other one that I think they're tent worms or silkworms, or I'm not exactly sure of the species, but they make the really big, they'll cocoon a bunch of leaves together to make kind of a, a shelter. Um, do you, what's the name of that one that does the shelters? Oh yeah, well, there's a bunch that do that actually. Okay. <laughs> but I mentioned, uh, I mentioned leaf rollers or tortricid moths. And one of the other larvae you had mentioned was uh, something that reminded me of like the diamondback moth larva. Um, and they'll, uh, yeah, that's the problem with dealing with them though, right? Is that they'll spin these silken shelters with the leaves or sometimes petals. And um, if you apply even like a, 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 a non-systemic, you know, botanical based insecticide or a biopesticide that they're meant to feed on and then, uh, you know, have problems later on, uh, if they're in their shelter, then they don't get exposed to it as easily. So that's for the same reason why borer caterpillars are so difficult to deal with, right? Pretty annoying. Yeah, uh, especially dealing with something that's living inside the stock really uh, um, can be a bitch to deal with for sure. Alrighty, well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, definitely looking forward to your talk at the, the conference here in November. and. Uh, uh, thanks for all the awesome work that you do and putting out information. I really appreciate it. Also, same to you and everyone else who uh, sends me pictures or videos or posted online. Um, I want to echo the statement as we're signing off here, it seems like, that um, cannabis growers are already aware of this, but there's not a whole lot of support for us and there's not a lot of support in the general community. And sometimes... Um, we have to kind of rely more on each other uh, than other sort of support measures that other crops and, and, and other avenues are able to get a lot easier than us. And it's for that reason that it's really important for me to share that information. Because um, just the more people who know it, the better biosecurity we have in general. And, you know, <laughs> we've, we've done this for a long period of time. Uh, a lot of people way longer than I have. So if I can help those people and facilitate cultivation in general, then I feel like I'm doing a good job, uh, whether that's privately or professionally. Absolutely. Um, how do people find you uh, one last time and, and your content? 
Absolutely. So if you'd like to interact professionally, you can find me at Zethanol Consulting. You can contact me there. Um, but you can also contact me on Instagram for that matter, at Sync Angel. And I'm also on Twitter, at Sync Angel. And I'm also, of course, uh, beholden to my patrons on Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash Zenthanol. And all of my content, for the most part, my most informational and uh, crispest videos are found on my YouTube channel, which is also called Zenthanol. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again for coming on the show. It was certainly awesome to learn all about uh, pest management and viruses and all different types of fun stuff. Um, we talk, and bricks and all the other wonderful things that we went over this episode. Um, uh, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate being on here. Humidor, um, how, how have you been doing? Uh, 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 anything new with you since... Uh, Last couple of days, uh, what's what's new in your grow? All right, uh, I don't know. You know, plodding along basically. Like, uh, no news is good news a lot of times with a grow. You know, like uh, honestly, uh, no reports, no nothing. Like, for example, you know, I've struggled with, with uh, spider mites for uh, a few months. Basically, I think I've turned the corner with those. I think I finally dominated their little bitch asses. So that's delightful. You know, the plants are. are I don't know. You can you can see it. I think in a. It, how do I put this? Maybe not in every garden, but in many gardens, you can see when a garden is just vibrant and happy you know like it's it's past a, a corner or it's turned a corner or whatever and you can just see like oh all the plants are cheerful happy their posture is correct their leaf color is correct like you know there's probably substantive things to that but you know i was going to ask before we take off for the evening uh xenthanol uh it's it, how do i put this like it, it was such a refrain among a lot of i think well-intentioned people that hey if you just uh, increase the bricks of your plants you'll make them invulnerable like superman and I feel like maybe we glossed over that too much. I mean, I know that you've talked about it a few times, but uh, I don't know that you can put that basically to bed, right? Like basically people, people went so far as to say you could take a healthy plant, let's, well, a super healthy plant, I guess, with 28, 29, 30 brick, whatever, you know, so some super high bricks and you could put it in the middle of a room, just absolutely infested with spider mites. And that plant supposedly was going to bounce it off. And I just always thought that that was implausible. Like, honestly, implausible. Like, you, you would maybe be resistant in that circumstance, but you're still going to get spider mites no matter who you are. You know, like, unless you were Superman with, like, bulletproof skin. I mean, that's absurd, right? Like, there's no... there. High bricks is not Kryptonian or something, right? Yeah, that is, uh, you're right. We might have glossed over that small point a bit. But that's kind of why I wanted to belabor it at the end, which is that um, I'm not saying that high bricks is bad or not even relevant or not important sure, um, sure. for the reasons I mentioned, but yeah, it, it's mostly that statement um, that like aphids will like rot because they don't have a pancreas or something like this. Um, it just kind of flies in the face of the uh, admittedly sort of unique information, erudite information mm. about bug physiology. Like who has the time for that? I do. Um, so that's why it seemed rather absurd to me. And um, it's also doesn't match up with my experience because I have worked with many people who use BRICS counts and, and they have had uh, pretty high levels of BRICS and they still get pests. And um, so, yeah, I just felt like that was sort of a um, over egging the pudding a, a little bit. Uh, and I think also it bothers me a bit because not only is that information not the most accurate as I understand it, but also um, I think people get this idea also that like 
that means that their plants are inherently unhealthy or that they have somehow failed to cultivate their plants uh, appropriately. I think I've even heard people say that if the, so like if insects feed on the plants, that means that the food or whatever resulting product from it is like inherently like not food or not healthy, but like not even like suitable for human consumption is the uh, uh, like words that I've heard like said explicitly. That just doesn't make any ecological sense to me. Um, no, I mean, so I, a, I mean, I don't have an explanation for it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't understand that either. I mean, obviously, and we've talked about this before. I mean, a higher bricks plant is probably doing better overall, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be, you know, magically immune to stuff, which I think is how it's often explained. It's one of the reasons why I like to focus on. Uh, like genes and like the molecular interactions that are happening at that like basic level, because it helps illustrate that like arms race between like the plant and the herbivore that's competing with the plant's immune system. Um, and that's why I like to bring other like quirky ecological examples with like viruses that are good for the plant. Um, curvularia thermotolerance virus, you know, uh, if a specific salt grass doesn't get this virus that's in a specific fungus and that colonizes the plant, it can't live in its natural environment. Um, or the fact that um, uh, some aphids, because they do secrete honeydew, which is a cost to the plant, right? They're sucking out the sugar. Um, that honeydew doesn't always get wasted. It can attract ants that help out the, the aphid, defends the aphid, but the parasite the aphid parasite is actually beneficial to the plant because in some cases, those ants will attack and chase off or kill uh, more damaging herbivores. And so from that ecological perspective, uh, although it takes a cost and resources, it actually benefits the, uh, the, the plant in aggregate, if that makes sense. And of course, everyone knows examples of things like monarch caterpillars and honeybees um, and other things that, uh, that make use of plant resources in one life stage and uh, then benefit the plant in another life stage. Uh, so these, these interactions are, are complex and I think they uh, sort of defy a uh, simplistic uh, viewpoint. I, I remember there was a plant, my gra- a flower my grandmother used to grow and it required ants to open the flowers up. I can't remember the name of it. I'm sure someone in chat will know. Um, but um, this was one of the more interesting ones. I actually sent this. Uh, 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 anyways, um, I thought this was one of the more interesting um, uh, interactions that I've ever read about. And this is about how um, certain terpenoids uh, are actually changed the, the scent of a- aphids and caterpillars to attract their host parasitoid wasp. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, Imagine a plant inventing a compound that's going to change the smell of a, a, a you know, predator that's feeding on the plant in order to attract the, the parasitoid wasp. Like, these are some of the crazy stuff that we still don't even know, even 5% of that's going on in our gardens. Um, I think especially as we learn more and more about the compl- complex nature of, of cannabis, cannabinoids, and terpenes, and, and the depth that they have, we're going to discover all different types of crazy interactions that are similar to this people mention things like you say like um like if the going back to the bricks content point uh 
that because the BRICS level is high, that means the plant can fuel. So it's it's a specific fact, it's the specific um, claim, right? That like the, the insects cannot handle the sugar, that the sugar itself is insecticidal in some way, or that they'll avoid it altogether. That stuff doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is that it can help fuel immune system responses and the microbiome and the soil and that kind of stuff. And also these sort of ecological intricacies that I mentioned earlier. But when people mention that it fuels these, these uh, uh, herbivore-induced plant volatiles or green leaf volatiles or whatever, or change the scent of the, the pest itself, the herbivore, um, they kind of leave it like at that. But obviously, it's more complicated than that because that's not a foolproof thing. What if the parasitoids aren't there? What if the parasitoids have become habituated to that scent in the first place? That happens. Um, it's one of the reasons why like uh, aromatic profiles and, and that kind of stuff, we know that they're useful and important um, when we do like electrophysiology tests and we like try to see, okay, does this odorant get a reaction in this parasitic wasp? Okay, cool. Is that related to this bug in some way? You know, that's helpful. But in, in reality, these behavioral quirks are plastic uh, and flexible. And as the environment changes, their sensitivities and interactions also change and are in flux. So again, it's kind of more complicated than that. I, um, I posted about a, a unique aphid-ant interaction, and I also don't want to keep on going forever, but um, it really hammered down this point. Uh, people who are interested in this kind of stuff should really look into the research of ecologists. Um, in specific, a lot of ecological theory really helps people understand like plant tritrophic interactions uh, between like plant herbivore and predator or micro plant microbe herbivore predator or something to this effect is this sort of contextual uh, webbing. This uh, is, was on my Instagram. I posted about a report that says the title is called um, a symbiotic aphid selfishly manipulates attending ants via dopamine and honeydew basically. Not all aphids do this, but this specific species literally dopes its honeydew with dopamine and it makes the ants aggressive um, and it makes them more antagonistic to other organisms. And when the, these aphids heavily rely on aphid, on ants, um, some aphids are a little bit, you know, it's, it's, they can take it or leave it, but these ones really need that. If they don't have ants tending them, they quickly die out in natural environments. Um, and in that paper, they talk about something that's really key about symbiosis that I want to share. I think at that point I'll be, I'll be done, which is that um, under natural selection, symbiotic relationships are predicted to decay because the cost necessary to maintain the relationship lowers the instantaneous reproductive rate, which essentially means basically if you use resources in the moment immediately, you're obviously uh, you know, going to be less fit in that moment, right? Um, kind of like getting tired after exercising or something. Good for you, but in that moment, you're weakened, um, as an example. So it says, this cost should invite cheaters that do not pay the cost, but exploit benefits from the symbiotic system. So remember, just because there's symbiosis, there can be things that exploit the same pathways that beneficials do, and parasites often do the same. Um, and so there's two ways that people deal with, I'm not going to read this verbatim, but basically there's two ways partner choice 
and sanctions. So partner choice is knowing how to choose a, a beneficial microbe or something like using a com chemical compound as proxy or something like this, or uh, by punishing organisms that do cheat these systems. Um, so like symbiosis has been around for a very long time, probably since uh, algae and uh, the, or, you know, the, the microbes that became chloroplasts, you know, uh, and the microbes that became mitochondria and animal cells, it's been around for a long time. And so ways of exploiting these systems has been around for billions, you know, at this point, like hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. Um, it's all complicated, basically. Speaking of it's complicated, I don't know, maybe last my last question anyway over the evening, and maybe I'll let you go. Uh, and, and Potent, I don't know what his plans are, but I was going to say, like, uh, I don't know, this is maybe a facetious question on some level, but uh, people always think that there are, like, magic bullets. They think that it's going to be high bricks or it's going to be silica. You know, people have been talking about, like, uh, all kinds of fancy silicas that are super-duper expensive. Those are going to just change your life in every way. People will love you. Like, you'll walk down the street and kids will, like, laugh at you and your pancakes will be tastier. I'm joking, of course, but I mean, like, uh, <laughs> is there any magic bullet that you've ever seen, basically? So, in other words, uh, in your case, probably that would be bug related or anything else. I mean, you know, whatever. Have you ever seen a magic bullet in growing? Um, I would say that I, I have seen things that come kind of close to that. Um, nothing is perfect. All all tools and weapons are contextual. Uh, um, but uh, basically, uh, you know, some things like that are broad spectrum, I think are probably the closest that come to that. Now, some things are broad spectrum and you got to be ecologically conscientious, right? Uh, as much as like Bouveria bassiana, for example, um, and it is found in many other places, so it's not like it's a contaminant, but the strains we use agriculturally are, of course, different than the, than the natural ones. Um, there's real uh, risk that even botanical chemistries we use can affect the, the natural ecosystem negatively, of course. Um, even things like wettable sulfur. But like, I, I say that broad spectrum things like the wettable sulfur, Bouveria bassiana, um, and maybe even some predatory mites like uh, Swirskiae cucumeris do come close because um, they tend to not, um, they, tend to go, they tend to kill a lot of various species and pests. So you kind of get a lot of bang for your buck. But at least in the case of like the sulfur, there is a contextual problem with it that it is also fungicidal and can have other negative effects on uh, non-target organisms. But I feel like that's the closest you kind of get to it. That and maybe physical barriers that keep the organisms from coming in in the first place and other cultural, uh, what are called cultural controls, right? Um, the how and, uh, the what and how to your grow. Uh, what are you doing and how are you doing it? Um, and how are you keeping things from infecting it in the, an IPM context? But yeah, generally speaking, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, the, the, the oiko or eco or whatever, uh, the Greek word that means, that means house or resource. It's the word that we use that means eco. It's the same eco for ecology and it's the same eco for economics. There's no free lunch. There, there's resources being exchanged energy isn't being destroyed, it's being transmitted, right? Um, it's being uh, just going from one state to another. So you just have to account for it. No, 
There was a great question from Chad about uh, insect frass and chitinase. Do you want to touch on that? And what are your thoughts on insect frass use in, in plant growth and how that affects the, the insects uh, defenses on the plants? Yeah. Um, sometimes when people ask me this question, they, uh, they confuse two chemical terms that are easy to confuse. Uh, chitinase is an enzyme that breaks down chitin that A's like the sucrase I was talking about, tensamine like is like an enzyme that breaks something down um, for those who aren't aware in the chat. So chitinase breaks down chitin, but chitosan is not chitinase. And there's a lot of chitin and chitin byproducts in frass because chitin is what makes up uh, insect um, body tissue, especially the exoskeleton. It's a polymer, a natural polymer. So, um, when people apply it, what you're doing to help the plant is that the plant is recognizing, you're basically priming an immune response in the plant because the plant recognizes the chitin and that's in a lot of plants, a signal that says, hey, there's a bug here. I don't like that. I'm gonna prime the defenses that will activate and will uh, have negative effects on uh, a chitin having organism. But, um, Research has shown that uh, it can be really, in some cases, uh, receptors and sens sensors in the plant can be very, very um, specific. And they can be very different between like mites versus insects or different kinds of insects. Um, so it is actually quite complicated in, in some cases. And uh, research can show what the immune responses is in plants when you have like a pathogen and then an insect and then a mite or mite, then insect, then pathogen or fungal pathogen. And then, you know, uh, the layers of defenses that get primed and changed between orders is also very relevant. Um, yeah, I guess I went a little bit over for that question, but essentially, yeah, Kytosan works as like a priming agent. And I think that's a pretty cool thing to, to make use of. It's also rather cheap. Oh yeah, I know we were using it in Zimbabwe both as, as fertilizer, but also mixing it with our IMO collections. We're trying to collect some of those local um, predatory fungi that feed on insect corpses and insect exoskeletons, right? So um, I think you can use it in a lot of different ways for trying to even source and gather stuff that's local that's not gonna have any type of negative impact on your local populations uh, outside of what you're going after. Chitin's also, uh, you know, important for fungal cells. Of course, it makes up fungal cells, so that's another thing that um, uh, sort of chitin products can can help. So there's a priming effect, not just for insects, but also for fungi. And other context cues are going to guide that immune response a bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on, is there any other uh, things that you think might work for people collecting their own mycorrhizal fungi, or not mycorrhizal fungi, but their own predatory fungi? Like we talked about with the IPMO from Korean Natural Farming um, that Chris Trump uh, was kind enough to share with me, and I got a chance to use a little bit both in Oklahoma and Zimbabwe. Um, uh, adding the target insects or insect frass or a combination of both as up to a third of your uh, rice uh, for your IMO collections, and then turning that into either IMO2 directly into uh, liquid IMO 
or an IMO4 and, and turning that, uh, adding the insect fast and target insects during IMO3 and, and then turning it into an IMO4 for, for application. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on you know, the future of, of kind of localized collection of, of predatory mycorrhizal, or not sorry, mycorrhizal, predatory fungal, fungi uh, like uh, local Bavaria strains or equivalent strains, or even ones that we've never even documented yet, which I think is probably going to be the case more often than not. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm super excited about this. I know that in the past, and I'd still agree with this, that like, um, a small critique about IMO is just that you don't always know what you're what you're getting with. You uh, maybe have great reason to suspect, right? Because they're growing on that substrate that they're probably neo antagonistic. And I think a lot of times it is true. But one of the things that I'm super excited about is that people you mentioned doing it at home and that sort of resourcefulness. And I'm very excited about people being able to use um, like uh, basically uh, genomic sequencers that are becoming so much more uh, available to people. Um, you know, shout out to William Padilla Brown. I like his music. I like his, uh, I like his style. Um, I like that he is facilitating uh, research regarding things like cordyceps mushrooms and, and cultivation and that kind of stuff. Um, I expect to see a lot more people like uh, Mr. Padilla Brown. I expect to see a lot more people being uh, excited to find out what it is that is powering the genes that, that make up these uh, advantages. And if people are able to, to, to culture these effectively, and, and of course you can get contamination and, and other problems and, and it might not be empirical uh, always, but it's like so cool. And I think people will be able to, to glean more information about those IMO um, consortiums that they're developing. And uh, I don't know, I think that's, that's going to make it, that's going to take it to a, a higher level uh, than it already is for people. Um, I'm not saying it's necessary or not, but I think that it, it will make things like um, facilitating different strains that people can like cultivate culture, and then maybe even share with each other. Uh, I think there's, there's great biosecurity potential for that kind of a thing. In the same way that people have been doing for a very long time with like psychoactive mushrooms, for example, and uh, uh, well, for that matter, other kinds of, of fungi. So that's something I'm super excited about. It's a good question. The last question, uh, uh, unless you want to stick around a little bit longer, I wanted to ask you. Um, root microbes. Um, uh, can you maybe touch on the fact that like root microbiodiversity really does help translate or you know how root diversity and microbes translates into better plant defenses in terms of secondary metabolites? Um, they kind of work like like vaccines in a way that to stimulate the plant's immune system or even just exposure to to similar type microorganisms can cause that increase in terpenes. And honestly, it really is the only way to dramatically increase terpenes is, is to stimulate that plant's immune system. That's how you, you activate those secondary compounds. Um, do you want to touch on that and kind of, um, uh, you know, there's so many myths around terps and all the different products that people sell people. Uh, uh, and I, I just like, would love to kind of dispel some of that. Absolutely. I don't know everything there is to know about the topic. Uh, you know, bottom line up front, I just want to be honest about that. But yeah, um, 
like so obviously goes without saying but just to say terpenes are of course you know they're not there for us they're for the plant and a lot of times they are some sort of semiochemical or signal compound right so they are um you know they're either going to be they, they might be damaging something they might be negatively affecting something by being toxic or they might communicate something they might repel they might attract they might do various things it might do multiple things, in fact, and usually they do. Um, but uh, the, um, how do I put this? Like uh, exposure to various, so, so alpha diversity, I'll put it this way. In ecology, we have a term, it's called alpha diversity. Alpha diversity is basically like the general, like you might consider like the average diversity. How diverse is it? The alpha diversity will kind of tell you that it basically it's there, you have a lot of different species in the area, uh, you know, they're very different, or you have not so many. Um, and then also talks about the proportion too, but I won't get into that. But essentially, how does that help you? Well, um, having even things that might even be like somewhat pathogenic or, you know, or at the very least, they might have a lifestyle switch or they're capable of it because not everything is just going to have one lifestyle. A lot of these microbes have multiple lifestyles that allow them to be uh, really useful um, and have uh, various um, kind of niches in ecology. So um, when you have great diversity, part of that is also like things that you might not want to have in that area but when you have this great diversity essentially it's kind of like having a um a, a tight network you know you have more netting in your net you know you have you have a uh, more um connection points you have more um sort of structural support uh have you ever watched the video series or the tv series um the expanse the sci-fi show Yep. Anyone? Yeah. Um, do you do you remember? There's an episode. I don't remember which one, but one of the characters is like a botanist, and he's explaining to um, their frankly psychopathic uh, <laughs> gunman character, who I'm a big fan of actually. But um, he's a kind of a cool guy, very funny. But um, he was explaining something that he called like simple complexity or something like this, and it's a great scene if you can find it. Because what they're explaining is because they're spacefaring group of people, of humans, right? And they're talking about how they can use a limited level of like plants and uh, like a, um, like a air conditioning. Yeah, yeah, there it is. That's the guy in the center is who I was talking about. Uh, very, very um, interesting fellow. But the botanist is the guy on the left. And he's talking to the guy in the center about how a simple complex system is very susceptible to problems because while it does have some level of layered defense because of the end redundancy, um, it doesn't have a whole lot. A natural system generally, not always, but tends to have so many other layers built up on other layers. And so you can have a lot more redundancy. Disturbance is a lot less disturbing for that matter. And so if you have diversity, that's very helpful. If you don't, if you have like limited diversity or some sort of like narrow band, then you uh, necessarily have um, more susceptibility to disruption 
and uh, things going wrong um, and things going wrong very fast, kind of having like a cascade event essentially, if that makes sense. So that's like kind of the sort of ecological reason why you would want great diversity. But as a cultivator, you don't want like, maybe some people would contend this, but you don't want like natural or completely natural or you don't want to like necessarily allow the, what I'm trying to get at is that there are pathogens that exist in nature that you don't want to allow in. There are pests that are in nature that you don't want to allow in. So obviously you are not, um, as a cultivator, you are trying to like exclude some things, uh, but a lot of like things are not something you want to exclude. And that's why I said the IMO techniques would be, I think benefited a lot by the sort of democratization of um, analysis technology, because it will allow uh, uh, clever people the tools to um, maybe even hone and fine tune IMO processes and strains and cultures. And then those become resources that people can use locally uh, and also possibly even share with other people. And who knows, maybe it, uh, it'll be something um, that people can actually start businesses related to. Uh, and especially, especially if people are able to prove that the cultures that they have are the cultures that they are and prove that the like virulence that, that they purport to have or some sort of insecticidal effect or plant priming effect is what it is by being, by being able to say these genes control for these effects in this plant. Here's the data. Here's the research about it. Um, and uh, here's the culture and here you, you can have it. And then I think that could have some really great um, biosecurity implications. But I think that's, in, that's for the future, maybe in a decade or so. That's a great point too. I, it's something I often uh, um, cite when people are like, why do you need to have silica and aquaponics? And it's like, well, there's literally like 600 different white papers on silica and the activation of of, of certain genes and plants, if silica is present or not present above a certain level, it won't turn on certain immune system response genes that actually help a lot with mold resistance and fungal resistance and, and other things in the plant as well. Um, and cannabis increases trichome density because uh, it's used in trichome production and a whole bunch of other things. So it's kind of you know almost goofy to me when people leave out some of these different elements that if you look at a chart and see what's bioavailable, silica is the highest, most bioavailable thing in almost any soil system, right? It's, it's the first thing on there. So um, it, it really is kind of a goofy thing, but there's so many different papers if you look at broader agriculture about specific levels for specific minerals or the presence of specific fungi or bacteria to activate certain genes that can cause x y and z and i think that we have almost no research on any of that stuff for cannabis you know very little research uh, do we have on, on those and we have such a much more complex um, output of, of secondary compounds with cannabis. You have, you know, over 200 or 300 different types of terpenes. You have all different cannabinoids, all different flavonoids, the phenols and everything else. Um, so it really gets, um, you know, who knows what we're going to end up discovering with all the different combinations and possibilities there are with that. And we shouldn't forget that, um, like you said about terpenes and other things being important for for pest abatement herbivore abatement pest is a human concept right let's just get that out of the way there's no natural pest they're in ecological terms they're parasites or they're mutualists or they're commensalists or they're herbivores perhaps 
Um, but yeah, right. Like stressors have, you know, stre- stressors um, facilitate the production of defensive compounds, many of which are esters or terpenes or things that we want in our product. Um, on the cheap home grow, I love to talk about how uh, grape growers will control the moisture content that they give their plants. They will control the amount of, to some degree, uh, 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 dryness or aridity in the soil um, and uh, other, other sorts of things like this in order to kind of, um, at the, for the end product, create a consistent product that you want with certain amounts of sugars and acids in the fruit. Uh, same thing with peppers, right? You can introduce a little bit of damage to the, to the fruit and that'll make them a little spicier, right? Because that, because what's the capsaicin actually supposed to do is supposed to um, uh, be antagonistic to mammalian herbivory in particular, and I guess insect too, to some degree. Uh, but birds uh, by and large are not affected by it because they are the carrier system for the seeds, uh, at least ancestrally speaking, um, right? So get, letting them get dry, letting them get hot, these stressors, uh, initialize responses that the plant, you know, has evolved in this way to do because ancestrally that helps them survive. So keeping your plant, that's why plant health is such an odd concept that we should really consider what we really mean when we say plant health, right? Because plant, because cultivators and organisms living in nature don't always have the same exact, um, you know, uh, driving forces behind them, essentially. A plant can get ate up all the hell, have all of its leaves defoliated. Some plants literally do this seasonally and they get by fine. But from a cultivator perspective, you would never want that, right? So obviously we must make the contention that these are not the same uh, context, right? Like uh, those dynamics are different. A good Um, example would be like CBL being expressed much heavier in cannabis in the presence of powdery mildew. Right. Like what if CBL becomes like the next big anti whatever drug and, and mm-hmm. helps people with some major disease and you have people intentionally infecting their grows at like two weeks before harvest with powdery mildew for the expression, you know, or some other crazy. I, and I'm not saying that's the case, but you but might have something that's yeah. equally as wacky and insane sounding currently that might end up being the, the commercial main production method, you know, five, 10 years from now. What if you inoculate your plant with an endophyte and especially uh, an endophyte that's been um, cultured and, uh, you know, uh, over many generations to have certain effects on the plant? Like maybe you inoculate with this endophyte and, um, you know, you pretty much are guaranteed a five to 10% increase in certain terpenes in certain cultivars. Like that would be, that would be amazing, Um, you know? uh plus give it like other effects maybe like um immune system responses and other sort of um acclimatizations uh i think that's a really cool prospect and i'm excited to see but we have to know this sort of like micro molecule gene interaction if you don't know that you can't it's hard to make uh sort of um you know, you can't, statements of confirmation. You can speculate and you can know that this is the case generally in a lot of plants, but you, you really want to know for sure. Um, otherwise, you're spending a lot of time and effort on something that's a maybe. And um, you also want to like, 
I mean, it's also hard to quantify certain things too. So sometimes at the end of the day, you just won't know. So I'm hoping to see a little bit more demystification in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's super hard to track a lot of that stuff too and figure out exactly what's going on. You know, a lot of those pathways and stuff are, are just really hard to, you know, directly prove. So short of just, hey, the introduction of this does this and without it, it does this, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you just, you never know what your specific situation is. So that's why I think context is so important. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you all night. Uh, I'm sure we could keep going uh, for a long time, but uh, I'm sure you, uh, you need to get some rest here as well. So uh, uh, I'll let you go. And uh, thanks for, for being on. Uh, why don't you tell everybody one last time how to find you? I know I said that once already, but we'll do it again. <laughs> of course. Yeah, no problem. And, uh, you know, this is how I am. I can't, I can't help but talk about this stuff. So um, you got me again, like another 30, 40 minutes. Um, but that's fine. I think it's uh, generally beneficial. So you can find my content uh, in multiple places. Instagram, uh, Twitter, my handle is at SyncAngel. Uh, you can find me for professional inquiries on Instagram, but also on my uh, website, zenthanol.com. And you can also find the bulk of my information about pests and plant health and things related to that in uh, my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, which I normally say is the channel that I am typing on the chat with, but I actually didn't get to do any of that this time around. Uh, I did get to steal some glances at the chat, uh, which is why I knew that the BRICS topic was so interesting and in demand. But besides that, I really don't know. So I really appreciate the support from everyone, all 67 plus of you watching. I know that number was higher up midway through this, but um, if you're with us still from the beginning, uh, you're a real true. These are the real loyal crew. Yeah. Yeah. You're the real symbionts here. You're the real mutual. These are the ones we could like pilot a submarine, like a, like a, like an aquaponic submarine if we need. That's to. right. Like the when world's we... largest like hanging gardens of Babylon, but underwater. If we needed like a submarine crew, these would be those people. These are the, yeah, these these will these will uh, follow us to hell high water. At least underwater, yeah. Yeah, maybe just underwater. Mm. We can promise fruit. All right. I don't know if we can deliver. What about, uh, what about you, Fumador? How can people find you? I have a channel. Uh, wouldn't you know it? I have a channel on YouTube. It's called uh, Fumador and the Flavors. Uh, I have a podcast as well. It's called Chronic Table. You guys can see the name right there, basically, if you're looking at it. Uh, if you're listening to podcasting kind of things and you like to, I don't know, do work or whatever and keep your hands busy with other stuff and then not stare in front of a screen, go check out uh, Chronic Table on uh, iTunes, Spotify, stuff like that. Go check out my channel, though. Uh, we like to have fun and uh, have fun, interesting conversations. We have fun people like Potent come on and Clackamas Coot and a bunch of other people come on and just uh, shoot the bull for a number of hours. We had quite a long show yesterday. I didn't honestly mean for it to go quite that long, but uh, I know we just had interesting conversations. Charlie's Farm came on and we started to talk about all kinds of history and background of cannabis. And it's, I don't know, we have a good time. So uh, this Saturday will be the next show. We're going to have Brews and Buds. So we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, cannabis, but also uh, integrating uh, craft uh, beer and 
you know, whatever else, tea, coffee, xenthanol, you're welcome to join us. I know you're a big tea person, so you're welcome to come. I mean, it's, it's brews and buds. We don't specify it has to be alcoholic brews, you know, but I do specify like craft brews. So you're welcome to come and talk about tea. And I know like I used to uh, drink tons of uh, Portland's kind of a, a tea center here, right? Like a tea importing place. There used to be lots and lots of Chinese here. So there's really a, a deep connection to, to China and India and a few other places too, but especially tea. Uh, a lot of the tea companies come from here. So anyway, I've gotten to try, try like, uh, puer teas and all kinds of different fermented teas and it'd be fun to talk about that kind of stuff on the show uh, you know tea has all kinds of uh, terpenes and flavors and effects and everything else that uh, you know beer and everything else does too so anyway that's the kind of stuff we kind of goof off about and also you know joke about random stuff and make fun of your mama and stuff like that go ahead Pogi. i was gonna say the, the monkey pick tea too and the, the civet shit coffee that's the one, yeah. They go. said that's the best. Yeah, you got to pull it out of a civet. So you got to fight the civet first, though. You got to fist fight. That's right. It makes you the climb it up to the tree, end. though. That's the thing. You, you can't find it. You can't find them on the ground. You got to, the best ones are up in the tree. You got to find the civet up in the tree. You got to insult its mother. Remember what I was saying about your mama? You got to insult the civet's mother. The civet's pissed off. And then you fist fight the civet. And when you defeat it, the civet poops. And then you collect that poop and you drink and you that put coffee. the civet in the, the, the rosin press and you compress yeah. it. So, so. <laughs> That's really only because your uncle is Joe Pesci, but uh, that's that's. Well, you know, they what they do is they buy the emu presses for the emu oil. Oh right, you get a Mm. whole bunch of civets the same size as an emu. So is that how they got rid of olive oil from Popeye? Like they just got an olive oil press (laughs) and just they just put the whole tree in there now. They just stopped caring. (laughs) Poor Popeye. Uh, And uh, uh, I did want to give everybody. uh, Oh, uh, and your website? Did you mention your website? I didn't actually. Uh, Fumidoro.com, uh, ladies and gentlemen, go take a look. Uh, genetic preservation kits, I believe they're called in many places. Uh, some people yep. call them beans, but uh, you may call them uh, different names. You, you never know how people call things, right? Uh, you might call your dog a different name than I might. Uh, but uh, that was a weird one. Yeah, that was the yeah, bones. Like, what the fuck has it? Yeah, no, I, it, whatever. It's probably, it just came out okay. of my mouth. What can I tell you? But uh, go take a look, uh, folks. Uh, Fumidoro.com, fumesofgold.com also is a, an easier way to remember it. It redirects to the same place. Uh, go take a look at photographs and, like I said, genetic preservation kits. And anyway, uh, great photos of the, the flower. Is available there. Cheers, man. Thank you. Uh, and um, also, shout out to everybody. We are currently ranked top three percent for cannabis podcast mm. in terms of uh, what? That's incredible. So, who could possibly uh, be ahead actually, of you? And can we hire somebody to uh, like Growcast, like, uh, uh, DGC, mm. a couple of other people that have, have uh, put put a little bit more effort into their podcasts in terms of time to put the DDoS to work. Right. <laughs> only room for one. Only room for one. And also to directly respond to you, life. Fumidor, uh, I would be down for that. I have to find out if that actually fits in my schedule, but I would love to do that. We talk about fermented awesome. alcohol, tea, or a coffee, or all kinds of stuff. I'm uh, very much. Saturday's pretty low key, you know. Like uh, Tuesdays, actually. I mean, honestly, now that I think about it, we have been meaning to get some guests and actually like interview them and stuff on Saturdays, more like you know, uh, microbrew people and 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 you know, beer brewers and stuff like that. But honestly, it's a fun thought. You could come on and talk about tea. Uh, normally, we just kind of 
shoot the bull, honestly, on Saturday, you know, like everybody's welcome to come on and it's very much like a pub atmosphere, honestly. Uh, Tuesday, it's still, frankly, a pub atmosphere, but at least the first couple hours of the show, uh, I try to have a guest. So, for example, this last Tuesday, we had uh, Jordan from Growcast, super cool guy, and we got to chat with him. He kind of held court, right? It was still a, a pub atmosphere, so Potent got to ask questions and Wes Engine got to ask questions, a few other smashed and a few on, but uh, it was still, you know, he was holding court. So that's a different, actually, Jordan said that, like, oh, I've never actually been on a show like this. I was like, I hope that's a good thing because, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, we have a little bit different vibe than, than a lot of people do. It's not super unique. I guess it's not super different. You know, it's it's familiar. A lot of people have seen the Embracing Organics show and certainly your uh, Cheap Home Grow and so on. It's not super different, but, you know, everybody has their little flavor of, of how they do stuff. So I feel like, uh, yeah, uh, I'll never forget a close friend of mine described Cheap Home Grow's uh, atmosphere as like a lobby. And I think he meant that not disparagingly, but I think he felt like that might be a reason why it was less. Um, yeah, you get a clap back. You're like, what? Are you calling me a waiting room or something? Fuck off, man. I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, no. It's, but it, it's, uh, it's a little bit less, uh, I guess you could say it's less energy intensive. Like you just said, it's low yeah, key. But, and that's, yeah. um, I think that's desirable in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. And I think that people are really flocking to it a lot, especially now. This was actually a comment that was made like, like a year and a half ago. So, um, it's a little bit of a different climate now, but yes, I appreciate the, um, uh, the invitation. Right on. Welcome. And, uh, everybody you can find us over at, um, apmjclass.com. If you're looking for a full, full class, again, we have a ton of content on there uh, and constantly adding new stuff all the time. And we're also over at apmjnewts.com. And we'll have some cool aquarium kits available there. Sam is working on doing the instructions and the manuals and stuff. We'll do some video content of that here in the next couple of weeks. But we have uh, all your minerals. If you want to buy them by the pound or four pounds, or if you want something different, we're happy to sell you that too. Just let us know how much you need. Um, but we'll save you all, sell you all the stuff that's in those fancy bottles you have in bulk. I mean, you could spend, you know, 50, 60 bucks on here and make the equivalent of, you know, four to $5,000 worth of bottled newts. Uh, and save you a hell of a lot of money uh, rather than uh, buying a bunch of pre-formulated stuff or uh, put in your your kit, put in the gallon of your aquarium, how many weeks of flower, and away you go. And we send you some kits that, you know, all, all pre-done. And see, we've done side-by-sides with different nutrient kits and everything else. Uh, we put a lot of time and effort in, into developing this stuff. So if you're looking for that type of stuff for turnkey aquaponic solutions, uh, we, Marty and Roger and I put a lot of effort into, into making that happen. So definitely check that out. Also check out Marty and his content over at APMJ, uh, I'm sorry, AP meds, uh, and all the awesome YouTube content he does. Uh, and you can check out myself at, um, uh, uh, growing with fishes and potent ponics on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we're on pretty much everything at this point, including YouTube, Amazon, Spotify, uh, all the things, um, I've, put a little bit of effort into getting us into every last thing that we weren't into already um, the last month or so. So definitely check us out. We've really been growing a lot the last month or two. So thanks everybody for that. And uh, we'll catch you guys again next week. Uh, we have, uh, hold on a second. I'll tell you who's going to be on the show next week. I have a, a, the guest booked out for quite a while now. Um, we've had a lot of cool people signing up for the show. Uh, next week will be uh, Wendy Kornberg. Oh no, I'm sorry wrong week is it the wrong week uh no next week will be luna whitcomb uh, uh editor and writer for skunk magazine that's cool too. oh i'm one of those i should probably mention that i'm one of those 
<laughs> well, you can recognize each other to be like the New Yorker uh, people where they basically like, yes. uh, I guess I should make fun of how, like the New York, you know, the jokes about how the New Yorkers like they, they meet each other and like have farts and stuff. So yeah, I'm not going to say that, but uh, there's all no, kinds of jokes about how snobby the New Yorker is like <laughs> family guy used to make fun of it. Right. I, I think, anyway, yeah, yeah, I definitely get the like YouTube or not, you know, for whatever reason, passionate about this kind of social media, I think is what I uh, read from that comment. <clears throat> what that means is tell your friends, if you guys like this kind of show, if you guys, you know, 58 or 60 people that are watching, if you have friends that grow, honestly, a lot of people have friends that grow uh, these days, they have uh, folks that they smoke with or whatever else, just, you know, folks that are trying to get into it or already experts. There's lots of people who might enjoy this content. Or for example, you know, if I can be shameless for a moment, my, my show on my channel, uh, or of course, uh, Cheap Home Grow, uh, Zenthanol is on there uh, every single Sunday. So if you guys enjoy that kind of content, literally tell your friends, you know, nobody else is going to tell them. So basically, like, tell your friends, help us grow so that basically the shows are bigger, faster, stronger. And honestly, like that, the word of mouth is one of the best ways to spread literally any business. People know that like anything roofing or freaking siding or cannabis podcasts, word of mouth. You know what I mean? Anyway, back to you. Alrighty, and uh, and don't forget the conference. You can see that and the stuff behind me. I made a background for it. So November thirteenth and fourteenth, 